Hi everybody, welcome to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host Bill Whittle and um, it is a Friday night edition. A um, little concerned the volume might be a little bit low because I was over um, modulating before, but actually I think uh, we always joke about getting a perfect launch, but I think this was, you know, a perfect launch. So how about that? Um, it's good to be here and uh, golly gee was a little vacation sure did this boy some good. Uh, Went on an epic road trip, which I'll talk about more on Monday night on our Stratosphere Studio show. Um, but uh, that's a story for another time and was certainly interesting and lots of fun and so on. Just as a little trivia note for those of you who are watching, who watch the show on uh, on Twitch, as I've said probably, I guess every episode now, we, we do a little pre-walk, uh, walk-in show, a little pre-show music roll, and we do a bunch of uh, TV themes from my misspent ute and uh i didn't know this until just now um but i have a, i owe a very large um debt of gratitude to a guy whose name i didn't know before uh his name uh is or was hoyt curtain hoyt curtain this blew my mind hoyt curtain is the guy who composed the theme for um johnny quest but he also did the flintstones and the Jetsons, and Top Cat, which I used to like when I before I liked any of these other things. Um, so good on you, Hoyt. Um, once once I found that out, just kind of stumbled on it. Uh, I realized there's a kind of a similar. You can hear certain themes in the um, in the uh, in the Jetsons and Johnny Quest. Uh, they're they're very similar elements to it anyway i love all three of them and and the flintstone song i mean just we all just grew up with the flintstone song um so again this is our thursday night show this is our political night and we'll get to the political stuff i don't have a lot of stuff to lead with uh tonight so hopefully we'll get some actual questions done um i will say though that while on the road i had some excellent ideas uh for the um for the 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 new test project you know the um Major Mace Mattingly and the Last Men on the Moon. So things are kind of coming together uh, on that. And one of the things that I thought would be fun to do would be to do a mail call. Now the key to this thing working is I got to turn it around fast. It's got to be about this week's news story. Um, so uh, I also thought it'd be fun to do um, just to get some extra content up there. I thought it'd be fun to do a mail call show where people can email. Major Mace Mattingly and the last men on the moon and ask them questions. And the reason um, that I thought this was kind of fun was because uh, I was listening to the Johnny Quest theme earlier today and I thought to myself, okay, so how can I work that into this, into this new political commentary thing? And I realized, oh, there's a way to do everything. Um, and what I decided to do was to say, uh, I'll have Major Mace Mattingly say, hey, listen, you know, send in your mail. The guys are going to basically reveal their presence because they're going to say, look, we're still under um, w the the sec the security program that we were read in for expired. And, um, and they kept quiet about things, but they decided to speak up finally now because they swore an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States. And they don't think that the government is representing that oath anymore. Uh, so that's why they're basically breaking their science silence. They sat and talked about it for years and finally realized, 
you know, we didn't swear an allegiance to the uh, to the U.S. government or certainly to any administration. Swore an oath to the Constitution, and I'm beginning to think that the people who administered that oath to us no longer represent those values. So we're going to um, we're going to speak our minds after being up here for 60 years. Uh, so anyway, I was saying, how do I work Johnny Quest into this and still keep this thing kind of on the general, you know, overall pop culture political scene? And I thought, okay, I can have, I can write some of these emails. I, I'm looking forward to taking real ones, but I can write the ones I want to. And I can have somebody say, uh, you know, be like a Dear Abby kind of thing. Uh, dear Mace, uh, Dear Major Mace uh, uh, Mattingly, um, my son... Uh, Erasmus is uh, is uh, he's eight years old now. Um, he's not dressing up in women's clothes or girls' clothes or anything, but I'm a little worried about him. Uh, he's um, he's very anxious. He he gets scared easily. He cries easily. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to be able to cope very well with what's going on in the world. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions. And then the suggestion will be absolutely. I have a suggestion. Get that get that boy of yours mega doses of Johnny Quest and get them stat because in the opening of Johnny Quest you get uh, bloodthirsty cannibalistic savages uh, kimono dragons pterodactyls uh, frogmen sargasso sea shipwrecks mummies you get laser beams you get uh, jetpacks flying platforms you get supersonic uh, jet engines and I'm basically just going to say that's what we're going to do. You know, just get get some Johnny Quest into the kid. That that's the first thing that'll stabilize the situation, and then um, and then have him just watch it. And and honestly, I think Race Bannon will 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 solve eighty percent of uh, of the um, of the problem. And by the way, I would get rid of the name Erasmus. I'd call him. I'd get him to. I, I would nickname him Race. Get it, Erasmus. Just call him Race. You mean race like in, like in like racial injustice? No, I mean race like two people competing to see who can go faster. Race, you struck me as a you struck me as a as a fast kid. Race, you struck me as the kind of kid who uh, doesn't take uh, losing sitting down. You strike me as the kind of kid that um, is out there and and if you lose, then you you get on the on the road and immediately start figuring out why you lost and try to get yourself better so you do it next time. So we're gonna call you race from now on, race, and um, and that's my suggestion. Next uh, next letter. This kind of thing to me is just hilarious and fun. And if nobody else takes it, then I'll be having fun by myself. But that's basically where I'm thinking about going. So that's kind of cool. And then we'll get him. Yeah, we'll slowly work him into Star Trek and and the whole Kirk thing. And um, and and if I get a Star Trek question, I'll say, pay attention to the attitudes of people. Notice they're not all laughing at each other. They're not all commenting on it. They're not. Say, Spock doesn't say something like, "I think science is awesome," because real people don't say that. I said, also watch Captain Kirk carefully, though. You want to watch how he runs the Enterprise, uh, but you also want to watch how he deals with women. Very important. Study this. Study this carefully. We'll come back and we'll do a follow-up after that. So there you go. Uh, so there's that. So um, we did the road trip. I put some um, – we did some uh, updates on the way, and then I guess I just started having too much fun or – whatever. I do have a lot of video that I'm going to edit down into something relatively tight just for the giggles. Uh, I had not ever been to the Air Force Museum before, because if you've been, you would remember it. Um, so here's the little political rant to open up the show today, and uh, and then we'll get on with the questions, because I've been very negligent with those lately. Uh, 
So when, when you go into the Air Force Museum, you see these amazing things. And obviously the queen of the show, without question, is the, is the B-70, the XB-70 uh, Valkyrie. There's nothing like it. And, and it even makes the A-12 and the SR-71 look a little dated. It's hard to believe that that, that thing was built by humans of any period. So here's how this kind of new outlook is, is starting to affect my uh, worldview now in terms of where I'm going to be going with this for the rest of the year and hopefully for quite a while. You look at the B-70 and, and you, just, you just can't believe it, especially when you stand underneath the things as wide as a, as a school bus is long or as, as a, almost a Greyhound is long. And you look and there's this gigantic engine underneath you. Wow, look at that engine. It's amazing. And you look up, it's like one, two, three, four, five, six of them. Um, and so I understand that uh, a museum is a place where you put older things. I get that aspect of it. But um, nothing in that room was newer than 30 years old. Nothing. Uh, and that's alarming. Uh, the B-70 just is the pinnacle. Everything else in that place is spectacular. And, and just about all the stuff that's... I'd be, I'd be willing to bet you that probably 80 or 90% of the stuff that's in the Air and Space Museum was built between 1960 and 1968, 70, maybe. In other words, that one 10 or 15-year golden age of aviation just plain um, was amazing. And the, um, I haven't checked the math on this, but I'm pretty sure this is right. I, I'm, I'm quite sure that the XB-70 is closer to the Wright brothers than it is to us. So in other words, the entire second half of aviation, we've not been able to surpass this stuff. Um, a quick, uh, quick little uh, related uh, super chat here from Bad Weather Biker. Good evening, Bill. Can I also recommend the Strategic Air Command Museum in Omaha? They have a Hustler, a B-36, and my favorite, a Vulcan. Amazing place and worth a visit. Sounds great. They have a, they have a Hustler at the um, Air and Space Museum. That's another example of, a, of just this plane was just you know, two centuries behind, uh, ahead of its time. So, um, so all of this stuff, all of this amazing stuff is 50 years old at least. And since then, we haven't really done much of anything. Now, here's the interesting political point. Um, up until very recently, I would have bitched and moaned and complained about that because it's depressing if you look at it from a certain point of view. Uh, in fact, it, it's depressing if you look at it from almost any point of view because it goes hand in hand with the just general uh, disintegration of society and all the rest of it. However, nobody wants to hear that. And, and this was my gigantic mental breakthrough for the year. I usually have one every two years or so. I talked about this briefly before, but I was thinking about how to sell this, this new, uh, you know, lecture delivery system. Uh, and I knew I wanted the gimmick and the astronauts and stuff. And I was showing Natasha some of the things I was thinking about in terms of looking at 2023 from America at the height of its powers in 1966. And I showed her a clip from Mad Men, and it's the clip where uh, Don Draper is telling the tobacco executives uh, that his plan is to uh, is to say that Lucky Strikes are toasted. If you haven't seen it, it's a great clip. But just by happy um, serendipity, that clip has Don Draper saying, 
Um, advertising is about happiness. It's a billboard that screams at you, everything's okay, and you're doing the right thing, and you're on the right track, and all the rest of it. And, and I realized, yeah, that's that's it. Um, it's the optimism. And then I connected that to the optimism of the 1960s, and that's why we were able to build XB70s, because no one was around to tell us that we couldn't. And no one was around to make us sign, you know, 15, 20 years of, um, of uh, permits before we got to building them. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get that optimism back from the moon. That's basically what I'm doing. The signal from the moon is going to be optimistic and not bitter, get off my lawn kind of thing. And so um, I just looked at the B-70 and, you know, and, and this is why I have such a fanboy attitude towards Elon Musk because among, not just what Elon Musk does, it's that Elon Musk is living, SpaceX, as well as the other things, is living proof that, that that is not dead, it's not gone. It's been suppressed by uh, left-wing politicians, it's been suppressed by the education system, been suppressed by everything, but it's still there. Uh, Elon Musk and a team in Hawthorne in Texas and Florida are doing things that China cannot do, that Russia cannot do, that the European Union cannot do, and that the United States government cannot do. And, there, and when I saw that heavy Falcon Heavy come back and land those boosters, I said, okay, so the reason I'm not, the reason I'm so into that is not only is the technology dead, but the response, the emotional response of those, of those people in the um, control room for all the SpaceX launches. So that's where I kind of want to go. I want to go into that, into that space. I want to appeal to those people. Um, we can switch things a little more political now. I saw recently an ad, one of the latest ads for the Navy, um, and that was that, uh, and this will get you to join. If you ever thought about, you know, you ever thought you might want to get behind the, um, behind the stick of an F-18, nothing will do it more like this ad, which basically features uh, a guy who's apparently like the supply officer for a squadron or some 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 unit in the Navy. And we see the guy there and it's just a typical picture, you know, typical military picture. But, and this is where you got to hold your kids back from, from bolting out the door to sign up immediately. Uh, he's also a drag queen. Isn't that amazing? And then they showed pictures of him as a drag queen um, and uh, doing his thing. I have no problem with drag queens. In fact, if he was doing that on a Royal Navy ship around 1780 or so, he'd find himself to be extremely popular. But it's not exactly what I would call uh, recruiting. And here's the thing, see, and this is the part I don't understand. I understand that they can be stupid enough to think, wow, every the whole world is turning trans, so we'd better get some trans people or else we're not going to have um, anybody to staff the military. My response to this is, let's say that you, that you met your recruiting goals with these ads. What kind of people are you getting? I'm not so much concerned about their sexual proclivities. I'm concerned about what kind of people are you getting? Are these warriors? I don't get the impression generally that they are. And when I hear them talk about the military, I hear them talk about things like, you know, oh, we're so inclusive and diverse and, oh, and you can get all kinds of job skills. It's like, that's not, what, that's not what people are interested in. It's primarily young men and it's primarily young men who it, it, at that point in their life feel like they're immortal because they kind of are and, and they just want to go out and blow things up. 
which is what America's all about as far as I'm concerned. So I was looking at that ad and I thought if I wanted to get people to join the Navy, what would I do about it? Well, I would I would do something like this. I'd go out, get actual footage. I wouldn't use simulator footage. Get actual footage of um, of F-18s doing traps in in minimum weather. If you've ever seen that, it's absolutely astonishing. It's just five guys on telephones. You know, this is the the, the LSO landing signal officer and all the guys around him paddles, and he's talking to the air. There's nothing out there. And all of a sudden, you see this little bit of a like a bright light, and then out of this fog comes this 50,000 pound uh, dual seated uh, attack fighter jet. F eighteen comes smashing down onto the deck, catch the wire, spray everywhere. It's raining like hell. I would, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to make this commercial. I'm going to cut it together, and um, I can have one of the guys on um, on the moon base send this down as their idea for a new recruiting thing, but. Uh, I would have I, I have to write it because when I don't write it, it's throwing spaghetti at the wall. But I would say basically something along the lines of uh, landing an aircraft, landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier, especially in low visibility, is the hardest thing that p- humans have ever done. It requires, at the same time, guts, brains, skill, talent, intuition, all of it. It's the hardest thing to do that humans do, and not one person in 100,000 are capable of doing this. You're probably not capable of doing it yourself, but we'd be willing to give it a try if you are. Something like that, you know? I would just plain appeal to the to the sense of elitism, not the bad kind of elitism, this kind of like, hey, do you want to play, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to play your life at 100% or do you want to just kind of limp around? And um, that's why that original um, Army ad was so great, you know, the be all be all that you can eat be ad, where the guys do this parachute jump, and and the, the narrator says we get more done by eight or nine in the morning than most people do all day. I'd say they get more done by eight or nine in the morning than most people do all month. If you do that, you will attract the kind of people who you need to attract, and you'll repel the kind of people who are the kind of people who you know just bring. Uh, disharmony and defeatism and and all these woke politics in the Navy. And by the way, I, I, I just feel very strongly about this, especially coming out of the Air Force Museum and all the rest of it. If they can't meet their recruiting goals, then I say, then we should mothball a couple of our older carriers. Because 11 carrier stripe groups are nice to have, but if you have to, if you have to staff them with people that can't do two push-ups, or people who are drag queens in their spare time and not taking their job seriously, if that's their, their identity, then I'd rather have those things mothballed than, than have them all deployable without, without the kind of crew needed to run them in combat. And I would run, I would just, I would sell the military as like, we are the badass big dogs on the block. We know it's not popular. We know that it gives people hissy fits. We know that a lot of people get triggered by it, and we say, good. Um, we're glad they get triggered by it because this isn't for everybody. This is just for a few. This is for those of you who have some courage. This is a few of you who have some, some patriotism, a few of you that want some genuine adventure instead of a reboot opportunity on, you know, um, Call of Duty or something. I would just go straight at that, and I think I think those ads would, would work wonders. And just along these lines, I was actually thinking, you know, what what if they gave me 
one carrier group, and I'll take the oldest one. You know, I'll take the Nimitz if I have to. I'd rather have Enterprise. But you just give me one. Just give me one Nimitz class carrier, and let me run it the way that it used to be run, and the way I'd like to run it, where it is 100% um, meritocracy, and it is all about readiness and effectiveness, and we don't get into any of that other crap. All we do is we do calisthenics, uh, we play cards, we drink scotch, and then uh, we go out there and we and we kick ass. I kind of think, um, Dave Bigbooty says Enterprise and Nimitz are already mothballed. Uh, Enterprise, I'm not talking about the old Enterprise, I'm talking about the upcoming Enterprise, Ford-class Enterprise. That's the Enterprise I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, I know I know the Nimitz is about to go. It's, it's, what, 40 years old, 50 almost? It's done a great job. I, I don't care. Give me the Nimitz. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the most beat-up carrier we have. And if, you, and if you ran that thing, just one, just one, just give me one carrier, and it's and it's attendant um, escorts, including the the destroyers and the submarines, and let me run those things the way they need to be run, and see how the readiness goes, and see how that particular carrier stripe group performs against other carrier strike groups. I'd be very curious, just as a social experiment, to see how that goes, because I think, wow, that's impressive, on the YouTube channel. Uh, sorry, can I get a channel? Uh, says he's the grandson of a rear admiral. That's great news, man. I think, um, I think, yeah. No, I know. My, I know. Enterprise is being scrapped. I, I'm not talking about that enterprise. I'm talking about the the, the new Ford class uh, enterprise. Uh, yeah, and Lady Hawks is uh, no more crashing into other ships. That'd be nice. All of it. I would make it as competitive as the devil, and I would run drills twenty four seven. Could I boot the losers, Road Rider? Absolutely. That's the entire point of the whole argument. I would boot everybody who didn't want to be there. In fact, I would boot anybody who couldn't make the bar. I would set the bar as high as possible, and I wouldn't. And, and if you don't make it, you're out. I'd boot the losers. I wouldn't chuck them over the fantail, you know, but I'd give them a ride. Um, and then I would just simply go at it and see what happens when you challenge people, because I think that's really what's missing in the society is just that sense of, are you going to just sit around and coast through life? Or are you going to are you going to do something hard? I've been doing a lot of DCS as a reward for those five months of um, of uh, time spent in the gulags in the basement of Lubyanka, and um, and I've been I decided I was just going to study the just do the F eighteen Hornet. Uh, it's one of four I think uh, four modules on this uh, DCS digital combat uh, simulator that's full fidelity where every single switch in the cockpit does something and you need to use every single switch in the cockpit. It's a lot of switches and they all have to be done in the right order. And the reason I decided to get into that was because it's exceedingly hard. It's really, really hard. And I was talking to my uh, lovely wife about that last night. She says, you seem chipper. I said, I'm chipper because I'm doing something really, really, really difficult and I'm not as good at it as I should be yet. In fact, I'm kind of alarmed that uh, people are that much better than me at this. Um, so um, I think there are, I think that uh, that doesn't appeal to everybody, but it, it doesn't have to. What's the percentage of people that are in the military now? It's, it's, is it, is it lower than 1% of the population? It's something shocking. I just throw the gauntlet down. I would just say, Hey, this almost certainly is not for you. If you're watching this commercial, 
99 out of 100 people that put their eyes on this, we're not really interested in you because you, you can't make it here. Uh, you could if you applied yourself, but that's a different story. And I would just plain, I would just plain um, do that. Uh, Eric Blake has been asked this question a lot because uh, we're going to have uh, female cosmonauts on the moon. Uh, and um, and a lot of people said, is Natasha going to do one of the voices? And the answer is uh, no. Uh, my wife is extraordinarily good at, at so many things, but she's not an actress. And, and so we'll find, we'll find something else for her to do. I'm sure she can come up with something. Uh, so, um, yeah, I would just do that, and I would see what happened. And if it turns out I was wrong, then I was wrong. But I, but I know I'm not wrong. I bet I'm not. Anyway, I want the best of the best. And if you don't think you can cut it, then you can, you know, go join the uh, join the um, the uh, the trans uh, self defense force or whatever. Um, Bad Weather Biker says they should have challenge for command combat for command combat Klingon style. You know, it's not a bad idea actually, and I know you're being a little facetious about that, but. Uh, challenge challenges everything, and and challenge is the greatest way to get to competence. Uh, I've been rereading a book called um, Neptune's Inferno about the naval action around Guadalcanal, and nobody talks about that. Everybody, everybody talks about Midway. I've been pushing Leyte Golf and, and Taffy Three. You know, you're not going to get that story again, so you can you don't have to run off just yet. But um, in addition to working on the Frank Luke thing, we're still having some some issues trying to clear the the rights for that. Uh, I am also uh, have an offer on the table for another history series, and this one has got to be one that I can write because I know it. it the the Empire of Terror took me five months because there's so much new stuff I had to read and learn. And I'm actually thinking about. Um, I originally thought I would do a series called The Navy, and now I'm actually thinking about doing a five-parter about the war in the Pacific. Um, uh, 1941, 1942, 43, 44, and 45. It'd be a five-part episode on, on the war in the Pacific because um, most of it would be Navy. A lot of the Marine Corps stories have been told. But at Guadalcanal, there were roughly 1,400, 1,500 American Marines killed. There were 5,000 sailors killed in, in battles at... Um, in Guadalcanal, mostly just off of Savo Island and the Iron Bottom Sound. And just to go to this uh, Klingon combat thing, um, in Guadalcanal, that, that whole thing happened, It was they called it Operation Shoe, it's officially called Operation Watchtower, but they called it Operation Shoestring because it was uh, relatively early in 42 and we were getting ready to do the um, the invasion of North Africa, Operation Torch, just so we, the British and the Russians could tell that we were in the war in, in, um, in, uh, in Europe. So we had limited resources and we had no plans to go to Guadalcanal until a, a coast spotter, one of these incredibly brave and unsung heroes, almost all of them Australians, just a guy out there with a radio, Japanese patrols looking for him and he's just broadcasting what he sees and one day he sends a call in and says the Japanese are on this island, not in force, but they're building an airport, an airstrip here on Guadalcanal. And uh, the Japanese didn't particularly care much about that airstrip. It wasn't top priority for them. 
But American strategists look at this and said, if they put an airstrip here on Guadalcanal, then their bombers will be in range of, um, of not only of Australia, but of the sea routes to Australia. We can't lose that. We, we just can't. So we, we sneak an invasion in there, take them completely by surprise. And then the, the Japanese keep trying to reinforce it, and they do, and we reinforce it a little bit. But anyway, one of the tiny little details of this is, and this would be in the, in the Navy, the war in the Pacific as well. Uh, I've talked many times about um, Taffy 3, which happened in 1944 up, up in Lady Gulf. The, um, the worst defeat, instead of the greatest victory, the worst defeat the United States took at sea was the Battle of Savo Island, where uh, we had five or six cruisers and a number of destroyers just cruising around in the dark, having no problem whatsoever. And this Japanese raiding force of cruisers and destroyers came in, and I think, I think they sank five cruisers, certainly four. Um, so it was it. But back to this business about co about competition for command. So we had our butts handed to us there um, by the Japanese, and um, and then we decided to do something about it. And there's a guy who doesn't get nearly enough attention in history, and I, that's why I want to do this series because I want to talk about him. Uh, there's an American admiral named um, um, Norman Scott virtually positive it was Norman Scott. Kind of a drag if I got that wrong. Hang on a second. I think that's him. Yeah, get it right. Yeah, what a stud. Okay, so Norm Scott was um, was uh, given command of the uh, surface, surface forces uh, in, in the Operation Watchtower down at Guadalcanal. And unlike the uh, people before him, Norm Scott um, took it really seriously. And unlike also many of the people there, Norm Scott uh, started drilling people very hard. He's holding drills all the time. On the way out to Guadalcanal, instead of just sailing there, they, he just insisted that these they would do something called offset aiming where uh, you'd have two battleships some distance apart or cruisers or whatever and they would fight at each other with live ammunition they would just offset 20 degrees to starboard or whatever and if they put splashes in your wake then that's a hit he just did it all the time all the time um uh, aoc says uh, american sailors didn't know how to shoot in the dark that's true we didn't the japanese who, who we mocked as being myopic short-sighted people who couldn't see at all practiced night warfare, night surface warfare for a decade before we ran into them and they cleaned our clocks for us. Um, but we had something they didn't have and we had radar and we had an early version of radar which looked like an oscilloscope with little spikes where contacts were. One, one of them was the SC and the other one was the SG, I think. I don't remember which was which. But by the time we got to Guadalcanal, we, we got what looks like a modern radar where the display is is basically spinning around like that. And now you have on this little cathode ray tube, now you have a perfect tactical representation of the battle at nighttime, well beyond the range of what a, a, a lookout could see on a dark night. So Norm Scott knew, knew quite a bit about, um, about the radar, and he was preparing to fight this way. And he fought the Japanese to a tie after he'd been given the command. It's kind of a relatively minor fight. It was actually a bloody mess. He ordered a turn and a couple of destroyers turned the wrong way or he turned the wrong way. Next thing you know, it's just a knife fight where everybody's shooting at everybody else. 
But Norm Scott understood what it would take to beat these guys. And then when he was ready for the big win, when he was really, when they had the whole fleet together, he lost the command to a guy now, I think his name Callahan, who outranked him by 15 days. So here's this fighting admiral who, uh, who, who is training everybody the entire length of the Pacific as he steams towards Guadalcanal. He, he understands the radar. He's got all these, he, he's the guy, he's the guy. He's gonna come in here and he's gonna kick some butt. And then when it comes time for the big, for the big battle, he, he's outranked by another guy who's got his same rank, rear admiral or whatever, but had 15 days seniority. And so the Navy gave the other guy command because that's how things work in the Navy. This is this has got to go. Um, and both of them decided to do what the Navy tradition is, which is when you've got an admiral on, on any kind of a task force, the admiral gets pretty much the biggest ship there is. Usually a larger ship has more space for the admiral's, you know, staff and stuff, but Norm Scott didn't care about any of that. Now, the guys, both Norm Scott and this guy Callahan, decide they're going to put their flag on these cruisers, and neither one of those cruisers had the new search radars. They could have taken one small step down and had the entire battle laid out for them in real time, every single ship accounted for, but they didn't know what they had with the radar. And they also did... Uh, they also did... Um, this kind of tradition thing. I got distracted here because uh, in the Twitch comment section, CP Tome says you have the most amazing people in the Stratosphere Lounge, a reactor operator on Nautilus and Enterprise. Uh, I didn't catch who that was, but if, if whoever it was was the reactor uh, officer on those, if you could contact me at info at billwhittle.com, I'd very, 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 very much like to talk to you. Very much like to talk to you. Um, so uh, that would mean a lot to me. It's Air Tucky who we saw. Uh, Air Tucky, by the way, is just uh, shown up in the uh, Twitch stream. Air Tucky knows more about airplanes than anybody I've ever seen. He's just, we were at the Air Force Museum and Infidel 42 was there. A number of other people. Air Tucky's just like, yeah, oh, this was a you know, Mark 43, you know, changed in 1968. Amazing, amazing. It's fun to meet all these guys. Um, it was a surface uh, nuke instructor at the Nautilus Project. Well, I would love to talk to you. If you can contact me at um, info at billwhittle.com, I will contact you directly because this is, as it turns out, exactly what I need. By the way, uh, episode nine of the Cold War is called Cloak and Dagger, Cloaks and Daggers, and it is all about the Nautilus. It starts off with the Triton. It's about the Nautilus. It's about, it's about um, the combination of the Nautilus power plant and the Albacore's hull design to get the skipjack class. It's about the, uh, the the loss of the Thresher, loss of the Scorpion, loss of K-129. Then it goes into Corona satellites and, and the A-12 SR-71 program. Then it comes back to Operation Azorian. But um, I, uh, I am I'm in deep need of, uh, serious need of deep knowledge about reactors, naval reactors, uh, because I think they're living proof that this is a tremendously powerful and safe energy system. And uh, one of the nice things about this new format is these guys can be arguing about it. Why aren't they all using nukes down there? And Well, because of Chernobyl. Well, Chernobyl is what happens when you give advanced technology to socialists. You can't count Chernobyl. That's what happens when you give commies nuclear power. You get Chernobyl and you get K-129 and you get 
not K one twenty nine. You get K nineteen, and you and you get and you get you get the the reactor uh, on on their first nuclear sub. They called the they called the boat Hiroshima. Get a chance to throw some stuff in there. Plus, kick the socialists was always kind of fun. Um, am I in the court of Neptune? Uh, uh, William uh, PMCD asked me. Um, if the question is, have I crossed the equator? The answer is yes, but I never, I didn't do it at sea, and I never had any kind of ceremony. If that's what you're talking about, that'd be my best guess. So anyway, that's kind of what I'm working on, and um, and I really would like to do the story of the, the the naval war in the Pacific because obviously people know Midway, but there's another way to, it's always a new way to tell Midway. Um, Pearl Harbor would be the end of the first episode; everything would be prior to that. Uh, the Japanese learned how to attack Pearl Harbor from exercises that we did in the 30s. Um, a polywog and a shellback, right? A polywog is somebody who hasn't crossed the equator, and a shellback is somebody who's been through the court of Neptune. Is that right? Um, no, it's a high honor that I've not held. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing I'd bring back in abundance. Uh, for those who are not familiar with this, uh, it's a tradition in the Navy uh, uh, you got to understand that you know the beginning. The Navy had to sail around the world, and crossing the equator was a big deal. It's still a big deal, but in the Navy, um, when you cross the equator, everybody who has not crossed the equator before is a polywog, and they have a court of King Neptune out there, and, and King Neptune is is uh, holding court. It's just one giant hazing thing. I have no doubt whatsoever, none, that somebody somewhere has decided that we can't do the court of Neptune anymore because it's degrading and humiliating and people who weren't included are going to feel bad. I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised if that were the case. Um, but it consists of all kinds of cool things like you'd have a, uh, one of the assistants of King Neptune, maybe, maybe it was King Neptune, but you, you generally find like the fattest chief on the boat or, you know, yeah, fattest chief petty officer on the boat. And then you would take like axle grease and cooking oil and everything gross that you could possibly think of, and he'd just smear it all over his belly. And then all the polywogs had to come up and and kiss that, you know. And and they had to like they had to you know go down a line and crawl through all kinds of crap. But the reason that they did that was because if when you got through that, now you're in the club. This is the thing you see. Um, is that this is what young men are looking for. This is why the Navy and the Army and the Air Force and the Marines and, and Coast Guard are not meeting their quotas because they have no idea what – the sea baby, thank you for that um, – because they have no idea what drives people and all the things that used to drive people, not just to the Navy but to the military, are gone. I talked to a guy uh, – I talked to a CPO, and this is, man, pretty close to 10 years ago, and he said – you know, he said he was a CPO, had been in for a long time. I said, uh, you going to re-up? He said, no, I'm done. I said, um, "Can I, mind if I ask why? And he said, it's just no fun anymore. You really could just put a period right there. It's just no fun anymore. You know, you would think that being below decks in the Navy would not be many people's idea of fun because you don't get to see daylight for three, four months. But what he was talking about was he said uh, – that they used to have a word for when they were important. That word was liberty. You are now at liberty. We have we're, we we've uh, we've docked at you know, five p.m. on a Friday, and as long as you are back aboard the ship by nine a.m. on Monday morning, what you do between now and then is your business. Don't get arrested, and for God's sakes, don't kill any locals. 
Um, and so um, that's liberty. And that's what I always assumed was still the case. He said, no, for years now, now when you, when you go ashore, there are approved places where you're allowed to stay. You're not allowed to stay at some, you know, some shady looking house of ill repute because you want to. No, no, there's hotels that you have to stay at. You can't stay anywhere else. They said you have to check in. You have to call in like any other little nine-year-old or 11-year-old, you know. They're just constantly checking up on you. You know, it's like no wonder you haven't, no wonder you haven't a recruiting problem. Michael Lewis says all the funds being leached out of the military. It's being leached out of society. It's being leached out of the world. Fun is being leached out of the world. This is how we win, by the way, you know, is we, 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 we sell the fun. It's just ultimately that's what it's about. People do things that they want to do because it's fun. So, yeah. So we, why don't we start selling fun? You know, this is dangerous. Yes. Yes, it's dangerous. And that's why we have hazing ceremonies, because we want to know that the people who are in are in. They're in. They've gone through what it takes to get in. It's not easy to get in. Once they're in, they're in. That sense of, of brotherhood. When I had that naming ceremony, the high point, one of the best days of my life, where they, they just referred to me a third person. Why is it talking? What is it doing here? Until finally I got my name. And after that, I'm getting, you know, handshakes and, hey, you did a great job. It's like that's as close as I've ever come to feeling like I was in the brotherhood, but it was close enough for me to know how powerful it was. you got to make things difficult to get into because if you don't, then there's no pride in being in it. This is the whole thing I'm kind of talking about now is like we got to get that sense of of it back. It's not elitism in the sense that we usually use the word. It's maybe, what's a better word I'm looking for? Um, competence. You got you to gotta clear that bar. Um, uh, bad weather biker again here with the super chat. A good person to talk to is Aaron at the sub brief channel. He's a retired sonar man and has done extensive documentaries on Soviet sub design. I believe I've seen his channel before. Um, and I would just, I would just go, I would go in the exact opposite direction that the current armed forces are going. I wouldn't insult anybody. There's no point in doing that, but I would sort of take a little towel snap at him. You know, I wouldn't, Go right at them, and I wouldn't degrade them. But I would snap a towel at them a little bit. You know, I would say, "Hey, you know, landing on an aircraft carrier in in heavy seas and low visibility is more difficult than putting on eyeshadow. It's a lot more difficult. So, which one do you want to do? That's where I'd go with it. And I do the same thing for the Army and the Air Force and, and the Marines, and all of that stuff. So, just a thought." Yes, Bucky, that's, there you go. Bucky Five says exceptionalism. That's the word. Thank you for that. Yes, it's not elitism, it's exceptionalism. And the nice thing about exceptionalism is, unlike elitism, elitism is usually about your credentials. Did you go to Harvard? Exceptionalism is something that everyone has access to. You can, you can make the club, and if you try to get into the club and you fail, then you go out and work harder until you get in. That's what pride is all about. The... Um, the ancient Greeks said that the, that the the highest form of happiness is using all of your powers to the to the best of your ability, and we are not doing much of that these days. So that's where I would go. That was where I would go to. Um, <laughs> Marisha Dark says, "Be excellent to each other." That's a fun little movie, Bill and Ted. Um, and Keanu Reeves is just living proof that not everything in Hollywood is pure evil. He's he's a remarkable guy. He lives very modestly. 
I don't have any problem with people spending their own money at all. But uh, I've heard the story from enough places to believe it that uh, he feels like he's made enough money and he's made a lot of money. And I had heard that he went to the guys who did the special effects on the first Matrix movie and took a, a significant amount of money and just gave it to them. Just gave it to the guys who are working for, you know, whatever they're working for, 60 grand a year or something at that time. All those animators who just said, yeah, here, here, have hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're the guys that, that made me look good on this movie. You, you earned this money, not me. I just think that's, you know, it's humility. Humility is the, is the, is the key to self-understanding. And that would be kind of great. So anyway, that's that. All right. So, uh, hey, it's, uh, let's do some questiones for once in our miserable lives. Uh, Zoe's segment on the Virtue Signal today was about um, Paul Stanley from KISS uh, made a statement basically saying, let's not get carried away with this transgender fad. And then he was immediately assaulted uh, by the uh, thought police. And then he retracted it. And I thought, wow, you really are a rocker. Um, so anyway, there you go. Yeah, he recanted. So what So what do you get for that, uh, Mr. Stanley? You know, as I said on the show today, for 40 years now, he's in KISS. He's the guy with a star on his eyes in KISS. For 40 years, the entire nation, half the nation, most of the nation said that KISS, Kiss stood for Knights in Service to Satan. You were accused of, of demon, being demons, of being demon worshipers, and you resisted that for 40, 50 years, and now you make one tweet about this? Yes, Star Child. You make one tweet about this, and you, you back up? You are a rebel rocker, all right. There's no ever, never apologize ever for something if you believe it's right. If you're wrong, admit, that you, admit you're wrong and say, I was incorrect about that, I apologize. But if, if you believe in something and you say something that pisses off half the country, then the other half of the country is going to be behind you 100%. If you retract the apology, if you retract what you're saying, now nobody likes you. The people you originally hated, you hate you, and the people who are ready to back you hate you. It's just stupid. Um, is that right, Dave Big Booty? I wouldn't be surprised. He said they chose K-I-S-S because they couldn't use the name they wanted to use, which was the F word. Uh, I hope that's hope that's true. Um, anyway, for those of you not heard the story, I mentioned this on the show today. Uh, I'll tell you who I don't think would back down uh, is uh, Gene Simmons. Uh, Gene Simmons um, escaped from socialism. His mother, he and his mother, were praying they could get to America so they could be safe. I actually directed him in a movie for a government agency back when government agencies were worth working for. Uh, briefly on a promotional film. And all you need to know about Gene Simmons, this is Gene Simmons in a nutshell. Uh, I never met him before. I wasn't a super big Kiss fan, but everybody knows who Gene Simmons is. So I'm standing there in the studio and Gene Simmons walks in the door and somebody says, uh, hey Gene, this is uh, Bill Woodle. He's going to be directing the segment today. I said, hey Gene, good to meet you. Uh, big fan. And uh, and Gene Simmons looked right at me and he waited like for a second, just stared right right through me and he said, you know, you are a remarkably good-looking man. What the hell do you say to that? You know, I said, uh, thank you. And then he held that look again for another second or two, and he said, you're going to do very well in prison. 
that's that's Gene Simmons. That's Gene Simmons, and and dry as a bone, man, just dry as a bone. No, not the slightest little hint that this was coming. It was just epic. This is one of the high points of my life. You're a very handsome man. You're going to do very well when you get to prison. Uh, okay, so let's see what we got here. Um, dun 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 dun. dun. Okie dokie. Slowly but surely. Onward we go. Come on, baby. Let's rock. Oh, um, hang on. While we were talking about the show, um, uh, Zoe was also talking about, he was talking about Kiss and the context that Kiss was in. He's also mentioned Twisted Sister. And that got me to do my Twisted Sister monologue, which I think is the finest piece of writing in the English language. I, I just think it's unequaled in, in terms of just sheer comedic density that, you know, you're worthless and weak. I watch that every time I get a little down. I just, one of the few things I peel out and I just, just cheers me up. Do nothing, are nothing. You sit around all day and play that sick electric twanger. I carried an M16 and you carry that, that, that guitar. Who are you? What do you want to do with your life? It's just great stuff. All right, let's see what we got here. Natural immunity? I got natural immunity too. It's the best kind of immunity because it's natural. Uh, I got a lot of things going on. I want to rock. Twisted sister. Is that... It? <laughs> what is that? Twisted Sister. His name's Mike something or other. He's in Animal House. Is that a Twisted Sister pin on your school uniform? It's classic. Classic. Yeah, uh, Edward uh, Smith said uh, he's read nice things about that guy. He's, uh, what was his name? Michael, Michael um, something or other. He, he's just... That, that's just... That's just some of my favorite... Western culture of all time. I just think it's absolutely perfect. Uh, all right, so here we go. Stress for lunch questions and more. We're getting there slowly but surely, Kings. Uh, what's his name? Michael something or other. I think he's still with us. Yeah, twisted. I've never heard anybody put that level of contempt into a into a word or two words. Twisted sister. Yeah, it was a guy who played Niedermeyer. He was frickin' epic in both of those things. Yes, I am recharged. I definitely felt like I got a little... Uh, got a little break there. Anybody have his name while I'm sitting here waiting? Actor who played Niedermeyer and who did The Father and Twisted Sister? There's a great moment in one of those, because he did two. There's a great moment in one of those where he goes upstairs to yell at the, the kid who's listening to Twisted Sister, and he's chewing him out. And the family's downstairs, not Mike Myers. Um, uh, and he's down, and the whole family was downstairs, and he's just this ball of rage, you know, like all good American dads. Um, and he, 
past the potatoes or something. Everybody's terrified of this guy. And finally, he goes upstairs to yell at the kid. When he starts chewing him out, the other the, the kid's brother just starts giggling under his under his breath. Mike Metcalf, that's him. Thank you, My, Mark. Mark Metcalf, what a great guy. He's just absolutely epic. Mark Metcalf, God bless you, Mark Metcalf. You made history. Okay, let's see here. Thursday stream for five o four twenty three. It's five o five twenty three. We're daylight, so yes, this is it. Um, yeah, my generation carried an M16, and yours, yours carries. It's the three that's that's the that's the moment that is just perfect, and you carry that 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 guitar. All right, moving along here. Um, hey, we have uh, Michael Bigger, second time asking. Missed it on the twentieth. I'm hoping you mean April twentieth and not the twentieth time. G'day, Bill. G'day, uh, Michael. Uh, got a question for you about BlackRock. I'm not at liberty to talk about BlackRock. I may or I can either confirm nor deny that I have any association with BlackRock. Um, how difficult would it be to create an anti-BlackRock? Unfortunately, the Clintons ruined the perfect name Whitewater, but we'd be able to work something else out. Stated policy of the new finance company would be to provide cheap financing for the lowest CEI-scored companies. Now all we need is $7 trillion. How hard would it be to raise that from Western civilization? Um, uh... Pilgrim Media with a super chat says, Bill, haven't seen you since before the pandemic. Well, I've been here. It's good to see you too. Um, you know, the thing of it is, Michael, is obviously, and Eric Eric Blake's on this a lot, you know, uh, on this topic. We get together, we can do this, we get together, and we can do that. Uh, and it is absolutely true. Um, but, in order to, to have that kind of power, you kind of have to be evil, you know? I mean, BlackRock is BlackRock because they're willing to sacrifice, well, they don't have any principles to sacrifice. Um, they, um, they're uh, predatory and they're, and, and they're, they strike me as much like Enron in that regard. It's like, it's not a question of whether this is moral or even legal so much as can we get away with it. When you're talking about you know, if if you ask me, could we raise seven billion dollars? I would say no. I think that's probably impossible. Seven thousand billion dollars? I'm sorry, I just don't see any chance of that. Now we don't have to have that kind of money, at least not in one place. Um, there's no the, the the single greatest, the single most valuable. I learned this from Dinesh D'Souza. The single most valuable thing in the world is the private property held by American citizens, almost all of them in the middle class. Um, so, um, that has some weight. Now this, this kind of ties in a little bit to the Bud Light boycott, uh, because it's not even, I heard Matt Walsh talking about this. It's, it's not even a boycott anymore. Now it's just plain, a boycott is something where you abandon the brand for a while to put a little pressure on them. Now it's like, this is, of all the things I've seen about Bud Light since the thing happened with Dylan Mulvaney, the one that's most astonishing is somebody showed footage, I want to say it was from Fenway Park, and there's a Bud Light stand, and then there's a stand for other beers, and the stand for other beers has a long, long line, and there's not a living soul in front of the Bud Light thing. Now, that's a statement, because now you're actually putting your time and money where your mouth is. Uh, I've been to enough baseball games and football games to know that 
I don't like going to the um, I don't like going to the uh, to the food stands at least while the game is on because I don't like missing part of the game. But there were people who who had decided to wait in line, miss a significant amount of the game because they couldn't stand to be seen at Bud Light. And that's where it is now. It's not like Bud Light. It's not like people are saying, oh, we're going to pr- protest Bud Light because of this. Now it's just nobody wants to drink Bud Light because it's a joke. And anybody that does drink Bud Light is just kind of a, you know, a weenie. So um, Eric says, honestly, our efforts against Bud Light kind of illustrate we could have that black rock quality for our side. But this kind of is my point. You will not be able to herd cats and conservatives and are individualists and individualists don't generally form uh, associations of that scale. But my point is, if you take the amount of money that the middle class, the American middle class does control and, and you find a way to channel it individually rather than putting it all in one big giant bank account, then um, then you can actually move the needle. I suspect it'll be a while before another uh, company does that kind of thing. At least another company that appeals to, presumably appealed to uh, working people, and they won't and they won't own up to it. They're oh no, it was just one beer one one beer can that we made as a promotional thing, and and just one promotion, and just keep just keep digging, bud. You know, just keep digging. There's only one way out of this, and that's a five year, ten year effort to recover yourself. And the first thing you do is you accept responsibility, and then the second thing you do is you make fun of yourself, and you don't ever stop making fun of yourself. You constantly, constantly, constantly refer to the fact that you've made the biggest business blunder since New Coke. And if you if you do that, you've got a, a chance of getting out there. It's going to take a, half a decade. But Coke recovered from New Coke. It just took them 10 years. And they did it slowly. But even Coke didn't insult its its user base the way that Bud Light did. The, the thing that's – the damaging thing about the Bud Light debacle is not so much the Dylan Mulvaney thing – the damaging thing was that footage of the of the VP in charge of it. Uh, you know, I'm the first woman vice president in charge of marketing, and we need to make it more inclusive. Our beer is kind of used by you know uh, rednecks and and frat boys, and and we need to make it modern. That's what destroyed them. Not not the Dylan Mulvaney thing. It's the, it's that that other person revealed the contempt that they have for their audience or their customers. That's not a good thing to do. You know. I mean, I hide it extremely well because I've had so much practice, you know, hiding my contempt for the people that uh, you know, become members or listen to me. And I'm, I'm a professional. I've been studying acting since I was a, a teen. But for people who don't know how to do it exactly perfectly, you don't generally insult the people who you're trying to sell to. And this one, I think, is a Rubicon. I really do. I think it's a Rubicon. So not only do I think we could do this, Michael, I don't think we should, you know. If you put $7 trillion or $7 billion, really, in one place, then whoever's whoever's entrusted to make the decisions to spend that is going to be corrupted. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. That's the that's human nature. And um, so just walk away. It's not a boycott. It's like we're, we're, we're done. We're not trying to exert pressure on you. We're just done. We're just not buying your stuff anymore. You've shown us who you are and who you think about. And we're not going to do it. And the more you, they, the president uh, or the marketing director or whoever, one of the VPs at a call to investors said, "Oh, oh no, it was just this one thing that we did, you know, and, and we didn't even really know it was happening. You know, we just next thing you know, it's on the air, and we all said, oh my God, what the hell is this?' Sure. Um, and he said, "We're going to triple our advertising budget uh, 
in the next couple months over the summer. I predict that this is going to be a failure. I don't think they're clever enough to do the only thing that would start to get them out of this, and that is to find the funniest way possible to continue to flog themselves. That's how I would do it. I think I mentioned this once uh, on one of the live shows the last couple of weeks. I would do, I would, I, I would, I would have an office scene, and we're at Bud Light headquarters, and it clearly says Bud Light headquarters. And then you'd go to the door, and it says Director of Marketing, Bud Light, and you open the door, and the guy's passed out on his desk, and he's got vomit all over, vomit all over him. He's got a stack of empty Miller or Schlitz bottles or something like that. Somebody pokes him, and goes, "What? What?" And then he turns around the room. There's a room full of very angry-looking um, executives and truck drivers and all the rest of it. He says, "What? What happened? What did I do?" Next thing, he's walking down the street. He's got his little box that's full of that's full of all of his his gear, and and he's walking down the street, and and somebody who vaguely resembles Dylan Mulvaney, you know, waves, and he just turns his box over, dumps his stuff out on the street, put the bag box over his head, keeps walking. That kind of thing would get them out of it. But I don't think they have any, uh, I don't think they have any concept about that. I think they're going to go with the whole patriotism thing and they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to talk about how important all the rest of this stuff is. Um, so there's that. Okay. Now I've got something here from Joe Roth that is extremely long and it doesn't appear to be a question. Um, so uh, let me, let me see here. I'm just going to uh, sort of, um, get the gist of this because I want to answer it is obviously put a lot of work into it but I don't want to read it out loud because it'll take too much time um, sorry about the dead air talk amongst yourselves yeah okay so there's two big paragraphs. Let me get to the first one. Um, uh, Joe said he's been spending um, years and years and years preparing to build a house in Tennessee. And he was just about to do it. He got the money together to do it. And he uh, decided to pull the trigger on building a house in Tennessee. And he found out that uh, prices for building this house have doubled. Uh, and he said there's a lot of – he says he talked to the um, contractors and there's all kinds of res uh, uh, regulations that weren't there before, permits, all of it, inflation on the cost of building materials, all the rest of it. And furthermore, I think probably what's the biggest element in driving up the cost of you building a house in Tennessee where you've lived your, uh, where you wanted to build your house is um, because Californians are moving to Tennessee in large numbers, and that's just driving up the property prices. Everything in California has another zero after it. If you saw a house in California for... Um, if you had a a one million five hundred thousand dollar house in California, and you go look and this happened to me when I went back to the University of Florida in nineteen nineties, I would look at real estate prices there, and I said these guys left a zero out. That that shouldn't be one hundred and fifty thousand dollar property. It's a million five hundred thousand dollar property. No, it's not. My friend Fritz Bronner, who had a house here, uh, you know, a decent sized house, probably half an acre maybe. He moved to a small Edgerton, Georgia, and now he owns. He owned, this will be in the in the video cut. My friend Fritz owns more property. My friend Fritz now owns in Georgia more open grassland than there is in L.A. County. Uh, he 
has his own lake. He has his own little forest. He's got pastures for his horses. It just goes on and on and on. You go through all these trails, all his, then you get to this, this incredible lake. He owns all of it because he bought a house in California, sold that one. Then he bought a bigger house in California, lived in it, improved it for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, sold that one, and now he has Terra. And I'm just completely, you know, blown away by it. Miserable son of a bitch, he did it just to get it. He, just, he did it just to make me feel bad and worthless and weak. But it's amazing. So that's the first part of it. Let me read the second part. Um, so he's talking about his family all voted for Biden because they hated Trump. Uh, huh. He, uh, Joe says that he doesn't, he said that his family said they don't mind the country being in this kind of bad shape because it was worth it to get Trump out of office. That's a, that's liberalism in a nutshell. Murder rates going up in black communities? Yes, they're tripling. Uh, inflation crushing the dreams of people who saved their money all their lives? Yep, absolutely. Uh, our military being laughed at around the world and, and, and all kinds of threats appearing? Yep, yep, yep. They're not denying it. They're just saying that's better than having a guy who had a mean tweet because they're all about the surface. They can't see anything. They don't they're not capable of seeing results. This is why they think that as long as I have good intentions, it doesn't matter if what I'm doing does harm to people. I'd rather be, I'd rather look good and do evil things than look evil and do good things. That's it. He then gave him an earful, lost the house in a dream and so on and so, so forth. And his family members told him to get over it, this lifelong dream, and said that Biden had nothing to do with this. Okay. Oh! And they're registered Republicans? That, that was a bit of a loop. So I'm um, just wrapping up here. So Joe's basically saying that his family members voted his dreams into the trash can because they didn't like Donald Trump. And now he's angry, doesn't like feeling this way, but at the point where he don't want to associate with Biden who voted ever again, blah, 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 including his family. There's a lot of people in that club now, pal. Never felt this way before, but now I feel like they are my enemy for destroying my country and not caring. I feel like it's personal now. Am I being too overreactive or am I justified in my feelings? I'm pretty pissed off. God help us if half the country would still vote for this commie S-head. He's a shithead. Let's just call him what he is. Uh, thanks, Bill, and God bless. A PS dad insult to injury. I owe the IRS over $4,000 after I did my taxes. My tax went up even though I didn't make much more than last year. God, I hate Democrats. Um, well, first of all, uh, no, you're not wrong to feel this. You're, you're, um, uh, you're 100% justified in feeling this. And it's not a good feeling to feel burning rage towards people who you've spent most of your life either loving or at least caring for, you know, close family members. I've had this experience myself now for 15, 20 years, a little more high profile than you, I suspect. Um, here's the thing, Joe, I don't know if you got this, and I don't know if anybody watching this gets this either, but this is, on, my, on the road trip, my friend Steve brought this up, and I, and I see this a lot. I'm willing to be convinced that it's um, confirmation bias or whatever, but I, I don't think it is. My experience has been, and the experience of everybody I've talked to who've been through this has been, that if you put 
conservative and and progressive family members at the same table at Thanksgiving, the conservatives will politely shut up and not talk about politics. We just won't talk about it. We know it's going to get nasty. We don't want to get nasty, so let's talk about football. But the progressives cannot help themselves. They have to poke you and continue to poke you until they get a response, at which point when you respond, then they'll say, well, geez, why are you so angry? Or I just want to drop the subject. Let's just drop it. I don't want to talk about it. My friend Steve was saying every time he would talk to his mom, she would just poke him, poke him, poke him, poke him, poke him, complain about how bad the country is and poke, 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 poke. And the second he started to answer, she said, look, I don't want to talk about it. don't want to discuss it. In other words, now that I've fired my shot at you, uh, Lord um, Bullingham, uh, now now I'm just going to walk away. And, and I've had that experience many times. I just go into these things. I mind my own business. I'm quiet. I know I disagree with them. I still love them. I just don't want to talk politics, so I don't. And every single time, they keep bringing it up. And it's not once or twice. It's, it's they will bring it up until they get a reaction. Because they have to have unanimity in order to convince themselves that they're right. Any kind of a dissenting voice is is anathema to them because truth is on our side. They don't want to hear the truth. So they have to have unanimity. And so, Joe, your choices are simple. You have the same choices I had. There, there are three of them. At least that's what I came down to. When I was missing Thanksgiving with family members now for, I don't know, eight years, seven years, whenever... Um, Trayvon Martin. I was with them when the Trayvon Martin verdict came down, uh, and that was the last time I saw them. Um, so you have three things you can do. Number one, you can just eat it, right? Just eat it. I don't recommend that. That's not that's not good for for you to stuff this stuff down. During the Friends of Abe days, I saw so many people who had sat in trailers and makeup rooms and so on or whatever on movie sets hearing them talking about how George Bush is a, you know, a, a psychopathic murderer and we're all just in there for the oil and all the rest of it. Right, Jim? Oh, yeah, yeah, I had to agree. It, it robs you of your self-respect if you just eat it and, and, and it's just, it's, it's like drinking acid. It's corrosive. So I wouldn't go with that choice. The second choice, which I gave serious thought to many times. In fact, I, as a person who's not widely known for their emotional discipline, uh, I was surprised at the degree of restraint. So the second choice is to is to shoot back. And I remember on two separate occasions with the family members, I remember I remember holding fire and thinking to myself, I'm a professional at this. This is what I do for a living, is dismantling these arguments. If I unholster and, and unload on these people, I'll destroy them. If I'm gonna fire that first shot, I'm gonna empty the magazine. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do a mag dump. I'm going to let them have it with everything I've got. Uh, and I've got a lot. This is what I do. Um, and I decided against that option too because I just, they're family. I didn't see any need to, to do that. So that's second option out of the way. So it leaves you the third option, and that is just simply do not associate with them anymore. And that's the default option that I find myself in and that so many people who I know who are conservatives find themselves in the option in. They do not want to talk about politics they go to family event. They don't talk about politics. The lefties can't help but talking about politics. They make you miserable. So your three choices, eat it, shoot back, or just don't go there anymore. I find the one to be less damaging to them and me is to just not go there anymore. Um, so 
Okay. One thing that you said that's really quite, quite interesting and, and alarming. Um, uh, I can't deal with that just yet. Um, is that they admit that things are worse, but they're happy because they got what they want. We burned down the house, yes, but that painting that I just couldn't stand, that my husband loved so much, that painting that just been driving me crazy in the in the bathroom, at least we got rid of that. Um, okay. Um, might I pro pro propose a fourth option, says Marcia Dark? Socratic questioning until you drive them to realize the contradiction in their own beliefs rather than making statements. That's a lovely thought. It just doesn't work because there are no rational beliefs and they do not respond to rational arguments. I'm telling you this from experience. They don't want to hear it. It's an emotional argument, and you can argue all of this you want to. They'll just, they'll just do what I said they'll do. They'll poke you, poke you, poke you, and if you decide to respond, then they'll say, I don't want to talk about it. You know, I guess you're triggered by this. You know, No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because they're not coming in good faith. If they were coming in good faith, they wouldn't talk about politics. They would know that they disagree with you. If they came in good faith, they'd just shut up and just enjoy the, the pumpkin pie and not be such dicks about it. But they are. They can't help it. That's how the, that's, it's, it's a psychological necessity for them to crush any kind of intellectual dissent, even if it's unspoken. That's the thing that drives me nuts about them, that it can, really is just almost too much to believe. It's not that they're responding to you to you, what you're saying. It's res they're responding to your presence. Just the, you can sit there and not say a word in the corner, and your presence there will cause them to continue to poke you until they get one of those responses. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I've done. I've. I've it just doesn't work that way. They are making emotional arguments for emotional reasons, and they cannot be Socratically logically logic their way out of it. It just—they're just not using the same software we're using. Um, uh, Sacred Order of Nightly Valor. Thank you for that super chat. If you can bring that up on Monday, I will deal with it on Monday. It's a Monday question. And I appreciate it. Uh, and here's another one: uh, Conservatism is an ethic. Leftism is a politic. Leftism is a religion, and they're entitled to their beliefs. And. I'm I'm the kind of guy who's saying, you know, maybe they're right. I don't think they are, but maybe they are. But the point is, I'm not going to ruin family relationships over something that I don't have to talk about. I don't have to talk about politics at Thanksgiving. They do. And not only do they do that, the, the politics that they believe in understands them well enough to know that they'll talk about politics because we had it during Obama and we had it during Biden. During the Obama thing, there was, there was a, a period there when it's like, how to discuss Ob the, the benefits of Obamacare with conservatives at the Thanksgiving table. That was actually put out by the White House. How to, how to discuss the wonders of the Affordable Care Act with your conservative relatives at Thanksgiving. Here are a bunch of talking points, which I'm sure many, many, many leftists just got out the pamphlet and read from it. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Knock yourself out. Um, then uh, I'm just not... I'm not going to waste time or energy anymore on this. Reason, and uh, not reason, they're immune to reason. They're not immune to reality. Reality will settle this argument. Okay, Reality will settle this argument. This is where I am now, and it's actually a good place to be. If you're feeling this kind of frustration, Joe, and just this churning anger, just take a, take a deep breath, step back. We need everybody on the team. Don't burn yourself out. Don't hurt your health. 
just sit back, just take a step back, take a breath and understand that reality will not be denied. Things will get worse before they get better, but that's okay. They now live in a city where there's human feces on the streets and, and homeless people defecating in their, in their doorways and their cars are being broken into every day and they still won't change their politics. They refuse to do it because it's to give up their identity. Okay, you've made this hell for yourself, now live in it. And if you decide to get away from that hell, you're not coming here because if you come here, let me rephrase that. You're not coming here, you're not gonna get the kind of um, virtue a love bomb that you think you're going to get here. You want to hold those progressive politics here in Texas, for example, we're not going to applaud you. We're going, we're going to make it pretty clear that we think you're an idiot. So you're not going to get the, the social stroke that you got back before. And that's it. And, and that's why that's why reality will not be denied. We're on the side of reality. We tried to save them from themselves. We didn't do it because it can't be done. If it could have been done, we wouldn't live in a cycle of civilization. We wouldn't have rise and falls of civilizations. So now my attitude is, and I think everybody's attitude is, should be triage, 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 triage. Right? It's just when you're faced with a horrible reality, like here come 10,000 bodies on, on stretchers, what do we do? We have 10 surgeons and we have 10,000 patients. What do we do? It'd be nice if we could operate on all of them, but we can't. And even if we did, some of them are not going to make it no matter what we do. So for those of you unfamiliar with the term, French term, triage basic, basically divides people into three parts. That's why there's the tree, the TRI. What triage did, and we use it all, all across society, but in military context, if you have an overwhelming rush of casualties, you have to, you have no choice. You have limited medical supply, uh, resources. So you have to divide people into three groups. One group of people are so lightly are lightly injured enough that they will survive at least for a while, for hours if not a day or two. You got shot through the arm, right? Yes. Have you, is the bleeding under control? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes, it hurts like hell. Okay. You're going to be all right. You're going to survive. It's going to be miserable. You go sit over there. You're in the first category. The second category is they bring somebody in who's still alive. has got his guts just blown out all over the place. You could put him into uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, teaching uh, emergency room, get him the best medical care on the planet, he's going to die anyway. That person you give morphine to and you uh, have somebody there to hold the hand because they're not going to survive whether you help them or not. That's the reality. That's, that's the cold, hard reality of it, and you have to look at that. So what you're left with is you're left with the group of people who will die if you don't do anything, but who will likely live if you do. And those are the people where you have to spend 100% of your effort. So this is how I'm looking at American society now. I'm just looking at it like triage. I don't worry about conservatives because conservatives get it. I'm not wasting any more trouble or time on people like your relatives because no matter how much I do, they're not going to get it. I'm just wasting my time. The time that I spend trying to convince people like your family members could be spent on that triageable group. It could be spent on people who could be persuaded. And I would say, generally speaking, it's pretty nearly a third, a third, and a third, honestly. So one third we don't have to worry about. They get it. They, they, it's, it's nice to give them comfort and morphine and, and, and you know, little hand grenades that they can throw. But they're not, they're, not, they're not in immediate danger. In fact, they're on the team. 
the ones who are not going to make it no matter what, who's so ego-identified with this horrible philosophy that they're even willing to admit that it's a horrible philosophy, it just feels good to them, I'm not going to waste any more time or effort on you. I'm going to go for the third of the country that can be convinced. And now we get down to the medical care. We have done such a miserable job. When I say we, I mean the officials in our you know, Republican Party officials and all the rest of it. Have done such a miserable job. Uh, Milton, Merlin says this is where we fall into the eugenics aspect. I don't know if you're talking about what I'm talking about, but if you are, this has got nothing to do with eugenics. Um, this has to do with attitudes, and and it's not so much. It's not so much what you are is where you are, who, you know, who raised you and, and what, what ideas do they put into your head. So they have all of the methods of control. They have the methods of control because they need them. They need to control social media because they're not telling the truth. They need to control education because they're not telling the truth. They need to control the government because they're not telling the truth. They need all of these things all the time. And we're still at a 50-50 country, more or less. We're still in the fight. If you think about how many advantages they have on the table, which would have been over a long, long time ago, but we have the truth on our side. And the Second Amendment doesn't hurt either. Uh, so, you know, go for the middle. Go for the middle. Insane Farms uh, asked me, Bill, what's your saving strategy? That's very simple. Um, I don't have one. And so my saving strategy is to continue to work until I drop dead. That's my plan. That is my, that's my honest, actual, honest-to-God answer. That's my plan. I'm just going to keep working until I drop. That's it. Um, I'm just trying to keep this thing running, and uh, and it's just plain. Uh, that's that's what I'm going to do. Um, so I hope that helped you, Joe. Um, don't you know? Don't feel guilty about it. Uh, don't beat yourself up over it. It's almost, you know, in a way, it's almost like having them die. You just kind of have to let them go, and 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 hope. Unlike people who actually die, hope that because it does happen that people that that the reality wrecking ball will will knock enough of them hard, some of them back to reality. There's some evidence that that happens. Um, that's all I can tell you on that, but. Oh, oh, and finally, as far as your house goes, um, I, I don't. I, here's a great example of me not knowing what I'm talking about, but just as a um, as a um, suggestion. You said uh, at the beginning that you live in New York and you want to build a house in uh, Tennessee because it's nice to live there and it's cheap. It was inexpensive enough for you to be able to afford it, and you can't afford it now. So the question is. Um, the question is not that you really should be asking yourself, I think, Joe, is is it that you really, really, really want to live in Tennessee or is it that you really, really, really like parts of Tennessee that you want to live in? In other words, if Tennessee is too expensive for you, what about Kentucky or what about Iowa or someplace else? Because there's a big flood of people heading into Tennessee, prices are up. So unless there's a particular neighborhood that you determined you wanted to live in all your life, if you're looking for a certain lifestyle or a certain price range or something, if you can't afford Tennessee, instead of giving up on your dream, I've said this many times, what is it you really want? 
people come to California to be actors, and you can be an actor in, in L.A. And if you want to be an actor, you can be happy in L.A. because you'll have a day job as a waiter, and at nighttime you get to act. If you come to L.A. to be a movie star, you'll be disappointed. So the question is, what is it you really want? I wanted to fly, and I wanted to fly high-performance aircraft, and I thought that meant the military, and it pretty much does. But a long easy is about as close to a fighter jet as you're going to get, uh, considerably cheaper than an F-16. And furthermore, if you really stick at it, I've got a couple hours in an L-39, which is a uh, jet trainer. I've flown at 400 knots in a jet. And, and so what is it you really want? If you want to, if you if you determine you want to join the NBA, and you're too short to join the NBA, do you want to be in the NBA or do you want to play basketball, in you know with good players? So I would just say, look around and 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 don't get bitter about don't get bitter about anything. Don't get bitter about your dreams. Just just see if you can find another place to put them someplace. Uh, in the comment section, a couple people said that. Um, that our friend uh, and and future overlord uh, uh, Doomcock has um, has tried to reach me, and he has emailed me, and I, I have here. I wrote it down before the show began. Uh, I need to write uh, a reply to Doomcock because I have been busy, but he's been saying he want to do something. I want to do something real bad. I want to tell him about this um, Major Mace Matt, uh, Mattingly and all the rest of it. So. Um, Thank you for being aware of that. I need to definitely get in touch with him. He's one of my favorite people, and I haven't spoken to him in months and months and months, as I have not been doing a bunch of other things for months and months and months. All right, so moving on here, let's see. Um, Bill, in last week's episode, you brought up the Dear Moon crew consisted of a bunch of yuppie DJs, dancers, and actors. You're right about nine of them. For me, Shining Later mission is that 10th member that Tim Dodd runs the Everyday Astronaut Oh, I see. Okay, it took me a while. I, I, I thought the Dear Moon Crew was a dance company or something. Uh, he's talking about the people that were selected to go on the uh, SpaceX mission uh, around the moon. Um, right about nine of them, but uh, Tim Dodd runs the Everyday Astronaut channel here on YouTube. And between him, Scott Manley, and yourself, us space lovers are well provided for. We're all envious, but he'll be able to provide us with excellent, knowledgeable commentary. I am. I stand corrected. Everyday Astronaut is a great channel. Uh, I, I watch more manly than, than everyday astronaut. If I had to pick somebody to go, I'd pick me. But if it couldn't be me, it would be Scott Manley. But everyday astronaut's great, and, and I stand corrected, and, and thank you for bringing that up. I really genuinely appreciate it when people point out uh, blind spots, oversights, or errors on my part. I just looked at the photo of them all in one spot, and I just thought, I don't know if any of these people really know what the moon is or how far away it is. I think... They don't strike me as the kind of people who, you know, the moon's 200 miles across and maybe, I don't know, a thousand miles away. But you're right about um, Everyday Astronaut. He's a great guy and we're all on the same team, so I'm sure he'll give us some terrific stuff. The thing that I was missing was not so much that guys like Everyday Astronaut or even Manly or even, um, uh, um, come on now. Justin on Smarter Every Day. Justin could do a, a really fine job of it, obviously. But the thing that I felt was missing was the historical perspective. That's what I thought was missing. Uh, and Justin's not old enough to have that. 
Uh, I've seen Justin interview Apollo astronauts, I mean, uh, engineers and stuff. And he's fantastic. He's a great channel, a brilliant channel. He's very successful. But he's interviewing them from a position of, gee, that must have been cool. And I saw the space program as in a position of, gee, this is cool. And gee, this is going to be cool. Um, which is what I love so much about the major um, Mace Mattingly thing. I just, I just love it. Um, I love, I love the idea of looking at 2023 through the eyes of 1966. And I had a real problem too about, um, about how I was going to get this stuff to these guys. I mean, I originally thought that they went up there in 1966, secret military mission. I'm keeping that. And then that after 1966, they just got cut off. But then I realized, because how would you resupply them and not know about it? These are the kind of things I'm talking about where you have to set the rules. In Star Trek, you have a device called the transporter, and it can do things and other things it can't do. And you have a warp drive, and it does things it can and other things it can't do. That's all been destroyed now, but at the time, uh, it all made sense. Uh, by the way, Gene Roddenberry was a bomber pilot, uh, a bombardier. He's a, uh, on a, on, in World War II. I don't think he was a pilot. He got shot down. Uh, so anyway... Um, so you have to set the rules. And I thought, well, how can I possibly justify these guys getting anything after 1966 in way of supplies? And then I realized, I know what I'll do. I'll have them just casually mention. Um, so it comes in the mailbag. Uh, dear Major uh, Matt, Matt, dear Major Mace Mattingly, um, you've been on the moon for a long time. See a lot of stuff there that, that seems like difficult to get there by 1966. How on earth did you find all this stuff? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I, like I said earlier when we decided to talk about this in the first place, we're letting the cat out of the bag for the sake of the country. So over the course of the intervening 40 years, we spend most of our time in a state of suspended animation, which is shockingly simple once you know what the secret is, but we can't reveal the secret. Um, but many, many, many of those launches that you've heard were classified Defense Department launches. You know, uh, the shuttle mission is a classified de Defense Department launch, and the launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base is a classified Defense Department launch. Well, most of those were for us. Um, uh, did you see the memes I DM'd you on Twitter? I will cheer you up. I don't really use Twitter very much, Sacred Order of Nightly Valor. Um, uh, so I didn't see them. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, so anyway, that's just a little little note. All right, so here we go. We're going to chew through a few more of these, and um, I'll probably just do a two-hour show tonight because I'm moving some mail and I have some things to do otherwise to get things going. Um, second time asking from Judy Sheeks. Hi, Judy. Hi, Bill. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I'm concerned about the NPVIC and, the very, few, and very few people know or care about it. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact has been gaining steam. States who've signed on it pledge to have their electors vote for the winner of the National Popular Vote. Essentially, it's an end run around the Electoral College. People who poo-pooed my concerns by saying it's unconstitutional neglect to note that almost all of Biden's executive orders have been unconstitutional as well, but he's issued them anyway. Further, there are already 16 states aboard the scheme, representing a total of just under 200 electoral votes, and the NPVIC is being presented in a number of states ahead of 2024. In my opinion, this is akin to the Soros DA's project and that it's going right on, going on right under our noses, and nobody's sounding the alarm. Ballotpedia.org has more info about this. As always, thanks for what you do. Thank you for that, uh, Judy. Um, and thank you, Ben Adams, for that just that super chat with just a, a, a an icon attached. So the 
the the electoral college is the is the remaining vestige of the tripartite deliver uh, uh, separation of powers that that is listed in the constitution the constitution separates power three ways and it does it three ways twice it does it between the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, but it also does it between the federal government, the state government, and local government. Um, that balance was destroyed by the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment provided for the popular election of senators. Well, who could be opposed to that? That's democracy. Prior to the 17th Amendment, uh, uh, one of the many progressive amendments, I want to say in the very early part of the 20th century, Prior to that, senators were not elected by the people. You didn't get to vote for your senator. You got to vote for your state legislators, and those state legislators appointed two representatives to go to Washington, not to represent the people of Alabama, but to represent the state of Alabama, the state's interest. The people of Alabama and all the rest of them were already represented in Washington through the House of Representatives. The Senate was supposed to be about the power of the states. Senators were not there to look out for the people of, of their state. That's what the House is for. They were to look out for the power of the state. They were there to defend the state's power against federal encroachment. And once you make that a popular election, then it's just a question of a, it's a popularity contest. You, the, the states should not be beholden to this. If I, had one, if I had one thing to do, if somebody said, Bill, you have one amendment, one, what would you do? I'd have to think very seriously about whether I'd repeal the 16th or the 17th, but I think taking the long view, I would repeal the 17th because if you repeal the 17th, you probably could get it back. I would repeal the 17th Amendment. I would have state legislatures, state legislatures send two senators to Washington to be representing the state that sends them, not the people, the state. That's all they're doing. They're watching out for encroachment on the power of the state. And when that went away, most of the balance of the Constitution that prevented accumulation in the center it didn't directly affect the judicial, executive, uh, legislative balance, but it did completely destroy the federal, state, and local balance. So now the federal government gains more and more power, and there's nobody to stop them except for conceivably the governors. The reason they want to eliminate the Electoral College is because the Electoral College— look. What they're trying to do is they're trying, and this is why this stuff is so easy to defend and we don't do it because we're just so bloody incompetent at it. The reason we have a bicamel a legislature, the reason that we have a, a legislature that has two camels in it uh, is because, because of the conflicting interests, not only of the original colonies, but the conflicting interests that exists in any kind of an arrangement where you have large powerful majorities wanting to form a compact with smaller, less powerful um, uh, organizations or whatever. The reason that we have a two-part Congress is because when they were trying to form the United States, big population states like New York said, hey, let's just have a, let's just have a, a House of Representatives. Uh, the more people, you know, let's just, that would, that would be fair, right? New York is basically saying to the Constitutional Convention, yeah, let's just have a House of Representatives. That way, 
people get to vote and, and we have our representation. Hooray. And then Rhode Island says, well, isn't that swell? That works out real well for New York. New York probably had the population of six or seven states. So you like it because it gives you dictatorial powers as the state of New York. What about us? Well, we could give every single state one vote or two votes. Let's say we give everybody, let's say we, everybody gets two votes. There is no House of Representatives. Every state gets two votes. That's our Congress. Now New York is the one on the defensive and says, okay, well, that's not fair. We have, a, we have seven times the population that you do, and you're saying we get the same amount of, of representation as you? That's kind of nuts. So what are we going to do? Well, one or the other. Couldn't have one or the other, so they, so they picked both. So the House of Representatives is based upon your population. California has more residents than Montana, and so California has a lot more power in the House of Representatives. But... For Montana to not be strangled by this arrangement, Montana has two senators, and so does California. And that means that they are equal power in the Senate. Now, that power still exists, but, they're, but the people sending them there are not the same. Now, it's a popularity contest. Nobody's going to Montana. Uh, well, some of them are. California senators are not there to represent the power of California against the federal government. They're all progressives. They want everything concentrated in the federal government. The distribution of power is what the Constitution is about. The reason America works is because we understand that human nature is corruptible, and the founding fathers figured out a perfectly balanced, perfectly balanced way of distributing these powers so that nobody could accumulate too much of them. And then through their rhetorical skill and their and their ability to frame an argument, the progressives in the early 1900s said, well, it's not, the, shouldn't the people decide who our senators are? And nobody had the guts or the sense, well, nobody effective enough anyway to say, no, that's not it. It's not a democracy, it's a republic. And if you don't understand that, you don't deserve to be in government. This is a, this is a third grade civics question that you're failing now. Mr. Uh, President, or whoever's pushing for this, Woodrow Wilson, probably did more damage to this country than any of them, only because he did it earlier. Um, so the Electoral College is all that's left of states having power. And the, the left can't stand this because, as we said earlier about the Thanksgiving dinner, progressives in California and Washington State and, and in San Francisco and in Washington cannot let people in Montana live their own lives. They cannot do it. They can't stand it. They have to control them. They have to. That's what they're, that's what they're built for. That's their genetic defect is they have to tell people what to do. They can't mind their own business. And so Montana can't just go off and be Montana. Montana has to be controlled by the federal government so that we can make the people in Montana do what we want to do here in San Francisco, which is tell people what to do. They're miserable, low-life swine. They're just horrible people. Horrible. Yes, and Woodrow Wilson, Erteki says, was a college professor. Woodrow Wilson was an intellectual. Intellectuals are the only people who are stupid enough to believe that they're smarter than everybody combined, and they're not. But this is the, the appeal of the intellectual is appeal to the ego. Look at me. I'm one of the smart people. How do we know that you're one of the smart people? Well, because I, I agree with what all the other smart people say. Do you even understand what they're saying? No, but I agree with them. And that makes me a smart person too. That's, that's how it works. People with insecurities about their virtue or their intelligence parrot 
what they are told are smart, virtuous people, and then they feel like they're in the club. That's virtue signaling. That's the definition of it. So this movement is unconstitutional. And I see how they're circumventing it. They're, they're being clever about it. it if, if they were to say, we're not going to do the electoral college thing, then, then they wouldn't be able to get away with it. They can't just say, we're just not going to have an electoral college in California. That's just plain, that's how we elect the president. The, this is the thing they can't stand. This is what civics is there for, and this is why they don't teach civics anymore, because civics educated people about our system. And if you understand the system, you'll defend it because it's brilliant. The Hang on a second, just lost my train of thought here. No, just flew out of my head. In any event... We have now thrown the system so so badly out of balance that this power grab is is taking place uh, everywhere. Um, oh, yeah, there there we go. Um, Mick from Vic says there are some ideas so absurd that only an intellectual could believe them. That's George Orwell. I like him better every single time I uh, I hear that name. He he got it better than anybody else in the world. Um, The answer to this is, I mean, the best way to fight it is, so you're progressives, right? Yes. We live in San Francisco, right? Yes. Well, how would you feel if I told you that the people in the backwoods of Mississippi are going to tell you how to live your life, that they have the political power to enforce you, to, to coerce you into living life by their, by their um, ethics and, and morality? How would you feel about that? Well, I don't know. Well, you're doing the same thing to them. The reason a country that's the size of a continent works is because we found a way to make all of these different groups. They're not artificial tribes like like uh, I'm an African-American or I'm an Asian-American. That's an artificial distinction. But America essentially is what five countries, six, seven countries maybe. New England is very different than the Southwest. California is very different than the Deep South. There are a at least four or five independent cultural nations in the United States of America. And the way that we've been able to live together and achieve the success that we've achieved is because a system was so perfectly balanced that everybody could agree to its terms. Nobody got everything they wanted, but everybody got enough for it to be worthwhile. And the prosperity that the system created has convinced people that prosperity is the default condition of mankind and that the government will pay for everything and so they vote in the government. My, ex my, my experience with people like progressives who want the government to be all-powerful is they want the government to be all-powerful because the government will give them a handout and businesses won't, at least not yet anyway. I'm sure they're well on their way. You go up to, um, go up to a bank and say, hey, I'd like, you know, I'd like you to give me, I don't know, $2,000 a month to live on. The bank's going to say, I don't think so. But if you say it to the federal government, they'll say, sure, absolutely, $2,000 a month, that's nothing, peanuts. All you have to do is vote for us, and we'll stay in power, and we'll keep giving you your $2,000. We'll just put it on the tab. It's three 
these $33,000 billion now, which will never be paid back, and they know it. And they know it's going gonna, it's gonna to collapse on some level. It's going to collapse. They know that too. They don't care. Are they getting their money now? Yes. These people don't care about anything other than themselves. They talk about how virtuous they are because that is their fig leaf against how selfish they are. It's all about them. I want to do everything my way all the time. I don't want to play by rules if the rules are against me. On the other hand, if the rules are in my favor, then I want the rules rigidly enforced. They have no ethical center. They have no moral compass other than power. So that's why you have to get rid of things like civics classes, because if you teach civics, you understand the genius of it. Many people said, "What's you know, what would you fix in the Constitution? My response to that would be, I would just have people read it and abide by it. There's not the only structural flaw that I'm aware of, and I don't know if this is a constitutional issue, I suspect it's not, but the only structural flaw that I'm aware of is the idea of um, prosecutorial discretion. There should be not a law, it should be built into the structure of either the state and the federal governments to say that the public, the state attorney general or the, or the attorney general of the United States do not have the right to decide not to prosecute crimes. They are forced to prosecute crimes. Now, people will say, well, if they prosecuted every crime, then they wouldn't have the resources for it. Well, then get the resources because every trouble that we're in right now started with Barack Obama taking over the Justice Department. Once you take over the Justice Department, it doesn't matter how many crimes Hillary Clinton commits. And it doesn't matter how much evidence there is against it. It's an open and shut case. It's been an open and shut case for five, ten, ten years now, practically, against Hillary Clinton. But that doesn't matter if the if the attorney general decides, oh, we're not gonna we're just we're not gonna prosecute her. Uh, here's James Comey, works for the Department of Justice, head of the FBI. Here's a forty-five indictment of every crime that she committed, and then he says, But I don't recommend we would prosecute I don't think any reasonable prosecutor would take the case, which is all the cover that they needed, all the fig leaf that they needed to not take the case, and so there you go. Um, it is just plain fraud and treason. Somebody, uh, Roadrider says, mentioned the Commerce Clause. That's a great example. I didn't know about this until, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. So when the federal government wants to tell you what health care you have to buy, they will say, you'll say, well, who the hell are you to tell me what insurance I can buy. Where's your power to do this? And they'll say the Constitution gives us the power in the Commerce Clause. Really? What's the Commerce Clause say? And they'll say, it's right there in the Constitution. It says Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce between the states. That's what it says? Yeah, that's what it says. Is there anything else there? You probably don't need to pay attention. No, I'm actually curious. Can I see the actual document? <sighs> yeah. Okay, so I'm reading the Commerce Clause here as it's written in the Constitution, and you're right. It does say that, but it doesn't say that with a period. It doesn't say Congress should have the power to regulate commerce between the states, period. It says right here, you can read it as well as I do, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce between the states, foreign powers, and Indian tribes. So you're not talking about interstate commerce. You're saying that Congress has the power to regulate commerce between the states. 
what they're basically saying is Alabama cannot cut a deal with a foreign power that Montana can't, can't cut. They are regulating the commerce of the states, not of the people. And this is the thing where, I mean, this it's easy to win the argument. It's just no, they're immune to logic. The Constitution is exceedingly perfectly clear. And a lot of this is, is due to um, uh, uh, Governor Warren and the, and the Committee on Style. They had all these great ideas. So how do we put them in terms that everybody will understand them? That's, that's the Committee on Style. And so in order to make everything clear, they were consistent. Um, they were very consistent. In the Constitution, they refer to, I said there's the country, the government's divided three ways, horizontally and vertically. The judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. Okay, that's clear. But when they were talking about the vertical separation, they were crystal clear too. They said the United States, that meant the federal government. The states, they said, were the states and the people. The only three levels that are ever referred to in the Constitution are the United States, the federal government, the states, meaning Georgia, and the people. So if the Commerce Clause meant what they say it meant, in other words, if the founders intended what these criminals are arguing that they do, it, no, no, it's right there. It says commerce shall have the power to regulate commerce. Then what they would have written is Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the people. That's what they would have written if that's what they'd intended. So that's not what they wrote between the states, foreign powers, and the Indian tribes. So basically, folks, unless you personally are a state, a foreign power, or an Indian tribe, they've got no business to tell you anything about anything, and they know it. They know it. This is why they – why do you think they named the, the, the dole, the, 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 the handout? Why do you think that the – where do you think they got the constitutional authority – to hand people money from the treasury. Where did that come from? It's not in the Constitution. So, again, these are masters of rhetoric and setting up the argument. So, they didn't call it the give people money program. They called it welfare. Why did we, why did we name our social program welfare? Why did it get the name of welfare? He's on welfare. In Britain, the slang term for it is the dole. Why didn't we name it the dole? Well, why? better question is, why did we call the program to hand out free money to people welfare? Well, they named it welfare because in the, in the introduction to the Constitution, it talks about providing for the general welfare. See, it's right there in the Constitution. We have to provide for the general welfare. We have to provide welfare to people. Well, first of all, if they meant from the preamble, look, the preamble, the preamble is an introduction. The preamble says, welcome to the house that we're in. Here's how things are going to work, right? That's not the law. That's not the rules. The rules are separation of powers are very clear and the, and the allocation of Congress powers are very clear. And the general welfare meant the general good of the people. When they named it welfare, they did it specifically so they could say that's what authorizes us to hand people money. The preamble of the Constitution. The preamble of the Constitution is a welcome to the House kind of thing. It's not, it's not a you can do whatever you want to in the House. It's like it's, it's welcome here. So this is how 
This is how it happened. We'll name it welfare. That way, we can claim it's in the Constitution. It's not. Provide for the general welfare. By the way, by the way, these guys were so smart that they didn't say provide for the individual welfare. They didn't even say provide welfare. They said provide for the general welfare. So even if they go to the to this chicanery and 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 outright fraud and lying by naming a program welfare to hand out money when that was not not only not in the Constitution, pretty much expressly prohibited. The founder said the general welfare. That means that if you want to make the argument that the federal government has the ability to just spend money on people, then the general welfare means everybody. Nobody gets a check that I don't get. The general welfare means all of us. So even by their own miserable definitions, they're still basically lying. The general welfare means the general welfare. You're going to allocate a trillion dollars for people to buy votes? Great. Make that trillion dollars available to the general public, the general welfare. That's all of us. We'll all get a check. That's not what they're doing. They're giving checks to certain people in order to get them to vote for them. And, um, and so that's how you defeat it. And so the people say now... Well, we have to put in some kind of protection to make these people um, uh, obey the um, obey the Constitution. No, the founders thought about this too. This is now we get to the problem, and I think I'll probably wrap up here. No, there's one more. I'll do one more, and then I'll wrap it up. Who's going to enforce this stuff? Who's going to enforce these brilliant laws? Well, the founders thought about that. Should we have a constitutional police force? Should we have the judiciary? They, the, they never envisioned that the judiciary could overturn a legal act of Congress. The idea that, that the judges could declare something that was passed by the Congress as unconstitutional and nullify the law would have horrified them. The Supreme Court was supposed to be the Supreme Court. It's like if you take an argument to the top, how high can you go? It goes here. When these people have made their decision, that's it. They're finished. The idea that the Supreme Court could say, well, the people passed this law, but we're going to overturn it because there's nine of us and we don't like it. And there was no provision for nine. All that Constitution calls for is a chief justice. Put that aside. The, the structure is, is perfect. And the reason that they did not include a Constitution police to enforce the Constitution is because they believed rightfully that the Constitution police is us. If somebody in the government is violating the Constitution, then we would throw them out of office. And that's who the Constitution police are. It's us. And we failed. Um, we failed badly because we watched all of this happen. And in our defense, it was also incremental, but th that there was never one go get your musket point. But over time, we watched it slowly happen. We watched that decision made in the, what was it, the 40s, where that farmer was told that he, he couldn't grow his own, um, his own feed for his own animals because he was interfering with interstate commerce. They made him buy somebody else's grain or at least pay market value for it. That's where the Commerce Clause got its teeth. We didn't do anything then. We haven't done any of that stuff. Where is it? C.P. Tome says it hasn't worked that way since the Civil War. Let me just add something here because I've been on this subject before. 
People say that the Civil War is when the federal government made the power grab. That's absolutely not true. That is just plain not true. The power grab that happened from the states to the federal government did not happen as a result of the Civil War or in the aftermath of the Civil War. You're 50 years too early. The loss of federal, the loss of states' rights against the federal government, the, the dissolution of the United States as a group rather than a single person did not occur during Reconstruction. It occurred during the Progressive Era. The 17th Amendment is what took away the power of the states as states. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It wasn't the Union. It wasn't the Confederacy. It wasn't any of those things. After the Civil War was over, you still sent senators to represent the great state of Alabama, which was just up in rebellion, and all of it was working perfectly. It just happened 50 years later. And guys like Razorfist say it happened in the past. must have been Lincoln. Lincoln didn't, Lincoln didn't destroy the power of the states. And the Civil War didn't destroy the power of the states, and the Union didn't destroy the power of the states, and the federal government didn't destroy the power of the states. The power of the states were destroyed by Woodrow Wilson and the progressive movement in the second decade, I want to say, of the 20th century. The 17th Amendment did that. You're 50 years too early, if 60 years too early, if you're looking for when things started to come apart that came apart in 19, what was it, 16, 17, somewhere around in there for the 17th Amendment. So there you go. Marisha says, still waiting for that razor fist response. Well, I've got other things as well, but I'll get to it eventually. Um, uh, this is interesting. Uh, can I get a channel? Says, my son is active duty right now, saving what he believes is your freedom. He knows the truth. I have taught him well. Uh, sir, I would I certainly don't need to tell you this, and I'm sure your son doesn't need to be told this either, but you might want to tell him on behalf of me and many other people here for what it's worth. It doesn't matter if he's protecting the freedoms of people who don't understand what freedom is. In fact, it doesn't even matter if he's protecting the freedom of people who mock him and mock the entire idea of freedom. What matters is he's protecting freedom. And even if there was no one in the country who would benefit from that, then protecting freedom is a cause worth dying for. But he's protecting the freedom of, of half the country that still gets it. And if half of the country doesn't, then that's a tragedy, but it's not in vain. As long as there are people ready to defend freedom, then there will be free Americans. And the problem is not coming from overseas, it's coming from inside. We need to... We need to get in gear and, and make sure that we still have a country that these brave men and women have a place to come home to. Looks like the place that they left for. Um, uh, he said, we love you people, that's why we do it. No greater gift than to lay down one's life for his friends. And you know, and I'm not trying to bash this point in, but to be honest with you, it's even honorable to lay down your life for people who consider themselves to be your enemies because you are not doing this for individuals or people. You're doing it for an ideal. You're defending an ideal. And, and it doesn't matter how many people believe in that ideal. It doesn't matter if there's one American left who believes in freedom and you're defending him. It doesn't matter if there's none of them. Defending the idea of freedom is in itself a moral good. And it's the highest form of moral good. So... You can say you're laying down your life for your friends and for the people who get it, yes, and you may also be laying down your life for people who not only don't get it but are actively trying to destroy freedom from within, and it's still worth doing because it's the right thing to do, period. 
I think that's really it. Um, and I think that's really important. All right, so I'm going to do one more, and it, unfortunately it's not you, Eric, so perhaps I'll get you on Monday. Uh, question from Roadrider. Uh, scouring CNBC about financial bank failures as my 40K is getting cream right now, but that's not it. On the main page news, CNBC reports, quote, Westinghouse Electric Company announces a new small nuclear reactor, a notable step in the industry's efforts to remake itself. How about that? The question is, is the free market figuring it out as it always has? A non-governmental company, Westinghouse, is reacting to changes and finding a new way to make money? Yeah, they're owned by Brookfield Corporation, a Canadian alternative investment company, but hey, it's still not a government agency, right? And here's the link and attaches a photo of the page just for kicks. And sorry about the uh, skid mark mistake in the last episode. I didn't take it personally. It's a common enough assumption. This is what, this is the heart and guts of what I'm trying to do with this major Mace Mattingly thing that I know some people still don't understand. The reason I want to look at 2023 through the eyes of 1966 is because all of this stuff that's happened since then is self-imposed. It is self imposed shackles that we put on ourselves. And there's no more dramatic case than nuclear power. I'm trying to think about how to put this. So the first nuclear accident of any magnitude was Three Mile Island, which killed exactly nobody. It was a scare, but the backup systems worked. Nuclear power died when people had the evidence of Chernobyl in front of them. But as I like my astronauts to say, that's what happens when you give commies technology. They'll, they'll build a fireplace in the middle of the room and they won't put any, they won't put the fire in the fireplace. They'll just light a fire in the middle of the room. That's what they do because it's cheaper. And, um, and you got to catch up with the West under any circumstances. So that's what Chernobyl was. And, and in the case of Fukushima, you had a reactor that was built to withstand a 9.0 earthquake. I don't believe there's been a 9.0 earthquake I don't know what the great Alaska quake was. I know for a certain fact that Los Angeles has never experienced the 9.0. The big one in LA is supposed to be 8.0, and it's a logarithmic scale. So a 9.0 earthquake, building it to, to withstand that is a very reasonable, very reasonable level of safety. Unfortunately for Fukushima, that earthquake was 9.1. The mistake of Fukushima was that they had anticipated the idea of the earthquake. They had anticipated the idea that the power would go out and so their pumps wouldn't run to keep the reactor cool. They put backup diesel generators there to, to power the pumps that would have kept the reactor from melting down. They did not count on the tsunami, which is kind of a strange oversight given its location and, and how familiar Japan is with tsunamis and how how remarkably effective their their government has been in terms of preparation and response to tsunamis. So... This thing survived a 9.1 earthquake. That didn't kill the reactor. Knocked a lot of power offline. So now they're trying to cool the reactor. But the tsunami comes in and floods out the diesel generators. And that was something they had not considered. Now, all three of those cases, Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, failed because, because engineering fail-safes failed. Fail-safes failed the engineering systems put in place to prevent nuclear accident failed and they failed because they're engineering solutions modern reactors certainly 
certain design for modern reactors are not fail-safe because the word fail-safe is an interesting word by the way we use it all the time not many people understand it a fail-safe system doesn't mean a system that will function all the time it's fail-safe it can't it can't fail fail-safe doesn't mean it can't fail fail-safe means it fails safe if something goes wrong and it fails it will it will default to safety so an engineering solution is not technically speaking a fail-safe solution because if the backup system fails you got a problem but if you if you take modern reactor designs they never get hot enough to melt down there is no meltdown pop possibility not because we have backup systems or all the rest of it it's it's not it's because physics if the reactor will not work and this is the same for fusion by the way the reactor will not function unless everything is going right and the second anything gets shuts off it stops being a threat the early fission plants which were designed in the 50s by the way don't do that um they don't work that way so why is it that nuclear power has been so demonized in this country well back when i was watching all this happen in the late 70s with the china syndrome which scared the hell out of me by the way because i didn't know anything about it uh nuclear activists wanted to get rid of nuclear power because they didn't like nuclear waste that was the argument they used we had a perfectly good system of getting rid of nuclear waste and that is burying it deep as hell into the ground where it's not going to hurt anybody and and in a hundred thousand years you can walk around in there but that's not something for us to worry about nobody appreciates the miracle of volume i think i've read that you could put all of the garbage generated in the united states in the next year or, or 10 years or a century or whatever i think it's a century something like that all of the all of the stuff we throw away could fit in a square that's a mile by a mile by a mile mile long mile wide and a mile deep it's amazing so in the beginning people feared nuclear reactors because of the nuclear waste and because of things like a breakthrough in the containment and radioactive fallout but after after that Germany and France, as well as the United States, France and Germany had extensive nuclear power systems. That was, in fact, that was the source of virtually all of their power. And I'll give them credit for this. They don't often have a chance to give the French credit for things, but the French and the Germans both realized, because they built the reactors later than we did, that what we'll do is, instead of having every reactor be unique, which is the case in the United States, we will design a standard reactor, and that way, every nuclear reactor we put in will essentially be identical which means that we can train people and have them be interchangeable once you get trained on that reactor you're as good as every other reactor it's a smart way to do things right so why all of a sudden in a world where they're screaming about carbon emissions let's just follow the the the, the little bread trails here right we're told that the world is going to end now, not because of nuclear waste or nuclear fallout. We're told the world is going to end because carbon in the atmosphere is getting too high. It's approaching 450 parts per million. It was 3,000 parts per million 80 million years ago, but let's not quibble about details. You would think that if their argument was true, if, if their entire premise was true, that carbon emissions are the problem. If that were true, then 
we'd be building nuclear power plants like there's no tomorrow because nuclear power plants don't release any carbon. And we're not. So why aren't we? The reason we're not building nuclear power plants is because the global climate change thing is not about climate change. It's about control. And the way you control people is by controlling their energy. Um, so um, thank you for that, uh, Cody, for that super chat. I'll get to that next week or something. Uh, but thank you. He says uh, he gave me the source for uh, Razor Fist, uh, anti-Lincoln tirade. But back to the issue. If they were really in favor of human civilization and freedom and democracy and all the rest of it and the people, then they should be they should be knocking us over in order to build nuclear power plants because nuclear power plants would mean that everybody gets not only energy, they get inexpensive energy, and there's no carbon. So why is it that we're not going to nuclear power plants? Because it's not about the carbon, and it's never been about the carbon. It's about controlling the masses, and the way you control the masses is you take away their power, their energy. Civilization, energy is civilization, civilization is energy. That's what makes civilization. The reason we're talking now amongst each other in real time and also through the miracle of storage is because of energy. And the reason that we don't have to carry our water up from the river or go down to the river and wash our clothes is because of energy. Energy is, is civilization. They don't like this. If we have abundant energy, then there is a middle class. And if you have a middle class that has abundant, relatively inexpensive energy, then they'll invent things like Apple computers or, or SpaceX or whatever, and then they'll go off on their own way. Next thing you know, they're going to be making tons of money and they won't be voting Democrats. So we have to find a way to control their power. If we can control the power, then we can control them. And so that's what this is all about. That's why they're not talking about nuclear power, because... It's not about the carbon. It's about getting us, not them. It's about getting us to eat bugs in the dark. That's the goal. That's the goal. And if you don't understand that, then you haven't been paying attention. The climate change issue, they lost the argument decade ago when, it, when they decided it was no longer about global warming, it's about climate change. Because global warming is something that can be proven or disproven. Climate change is something that happens all the time. Climate has never been the same. It's changing constantly. So once they said we got to stop this climate change, it's basically like saying we got to stop it from raining and we got to do everything we can to stop it from raining. Right. So now all of this stuff is all about limiting your choices and your freedom. You won't be able to buy a gasoline car because it's bad for the environment. Shortly after that, you won't be able to buy a car at all because it's bad for the environment. You'll have to ride on a train or a bus or something else that they can control. And pretty soon, they'll start scaling those things down too. In the Soviet Union, you had to wait 10 years for a car. Or 20. And it's not that the Soviet Union couldn't make more cars. It's just that the, the Kremlin didn't want Soviet citizens to have cars because if they have cars, they can go wherever they want to. And they'll start getting, you know, uncomfortable, inconvenient ideas about why are you telling me where I can go? The Soviet Union and Russia today still has internal passports. I don't know how many people know that, but they have a international passport to allow them to tra travel to other countries. 
but they also have internal passports that they have to show when they go from one part of Russia to the other. That's how we control people. The whole reason for our success is that we didn't control people. We just let them do their own thing. And that's why we have the B-70 Valkyrie in the museum. It used to be out, outside. My friend Phil said he saw it outside, and it's heartbreaking. It's just getting worse and worse. They finally brought that big, beautiful bird inside, so at least it's not corroding away now. But this is what happens when you let people do their own thing. So anytime you hear this, and now you have two generations that are utterly convinced. Thank you for the super chat there, uh, QC. Energy is civilization, he said. He's absolutely right. Um, and uh, 1968 Camaro SS is right. Can't have people getting uppity. Nope. Democrats have, have, have been doing their best to keep people on plantations and not get uppity since there's been a Democratic Party. So um, that's where that's where that lives. It's about controlling you. And when they start talking about things like eating bugs, and that, well, why are, why are we even having this discussion about eating bugs? Eating bugs is, is disgusting. Well, it's not as disgusting as you think it is. It actually, it, it actually could be very delicious. The reason we're having to ask you to eat bugs instead of steak is because cows emit too much methane, you see? And if we allow you to eat steak when you want to, then that'll kill the planet. And since we don't want to kill the planet, we all don't want to die or drown or burn, whichever one comes first. That's why you have to eat bugs. You have to eat bugs because if you eat cows, you'll kill the planet. And people believe this. People believe this. People believe that the world is getting more and more precarious. I mentioned this, I don't know, when I, when I mentioned it, it might have been on the last show I did. I don't remember when I, when I mentioned it. But I recently... Oh, I guess it was on one of the right angles, maybe the backstage show. Uh, nice thing about um, about being on an airplane for five hours is you get to watch five or six movies at the same time. If they've got the movies in the back of the seats, you get to watch five or six films at, at least at the same time. And so you get to see films that you wouldn't otherwise watch. And one of the films that I got to see when I was flying back, because the person across the aisle from me had that playing on their screen. Actually, there's a person in my row, not next to me, the next person over. They were watching... Training Day. Uh, data point here. Two thousand and one. So, as I'm flying back uh, from Florida to California, I'm watching a movie that is twenty-two years old, shot in Los Angeles. And you really need to see Training Day. It won't mean as much to you if you don't live here. But Training Day takes place on the streets of L.A. So there's lots of external shots of Los Angeles in a movie that's 22 years old. And virtually all of those shots look exactly like L.A. when I got here in 88. It's like somebody stuffed the air full of gray cotton. The, the degree of air pollution in 2001 in Training Day you just don't see that anymore. It, it's it. This is this is why you can't fall into the trap of everything environmental is bad. No, there's some environmental things that are good. They just always go too far. So in 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 the 80s and 90s and so on, they started saying, you know, we're going to put these vapor recovery systems on the um, on the gas 
pump. So instead of having a gas pump, you've got something to, to fuel a Starship. The thing's this big. It's got an accordion on it. weighs 100 pounds to suck up the vapors. And I thought, is this really such a big deal? Turns out it is. There hasn't been a day as smoggy as the day in training day. I have not seen that kind of smog in the city ever in 10 years. Ever. The worst summer days now are better than the best days used to be in Los Angeles. And much of that is due to the fact that we listened to them when they said we should stop burning diesel on all of our buses and go with the most clean burning fuel we can, which is compressed natural gas, because that was going to stop the pollution. And it did. So now you've got natural gas through fracking. We've got more than we know what to do with. So now everybody has abundant cheap power again that's clean. And we can't have that because that would mean people get uppity. So now we have to make natural gas the villain when, in fact, when in fact it was natural gas and, and some other uh, technological solutions that cleaned up the city. I said it so many times because it's still absolutely true. When I got to Los Angeles, I got here in the summer of 88, I took a job as a temp working for Enterprise Rent-A-Car in Beverly Hills, and I was driving people around De Beverly Hills for about three weeks until finally it cleared enough for me to see the Santa Monica Mountains, which are just a couple miles down the road. And I stepped out one day, and it cleared enough for me to see that. I said, my God, we're in a valley. This is a valley. You're surrounded by mountains. You forget about seeing the, 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 the big mountains up by Mount Baldy and stuff. You couldn't see the Santa Monica Mountains from, from Beverly Hills. Couldn't see them for, for three weeks. So there you go. Um, Fire Waco says you can find Ellie's smog down in Mexico. Check out some summer in Monterey. I don't know if it's our, if you mean our smog. I don't think our smog has migrated. I think that they haven't done the things that we've done. I have heard people say it might be hyperbolic that the the geography of Mexico City being a bowl is that they could stop all emissions tomorrow and that smoke that smog wouldn't clear for a century, something like that. Um, so so your answer about nuclear power is why is Westinghouse finally getting to this point? There was huge money to be made in nuclear power and there still is. And nuclear power this is why I wanted to talk to our friend who's the um, reactor engineer on, on surface vessels and, and who helped work with the reactor on the Nautilus. There are two kinds of nuclear, there are two kinds of fission nuclear power plants. There's the American kind and there's the Russian kind. The Russian kind killed 30 or 40 people on board their first nuclear sub and killed probably that many on K-19, their first ballistic missile sub, that's what socialist engineering does. On the other hand, we have had at least tens of thousands and, and conceivably hundreds of thousands of young men sailing around the world in a steel tube underwater powered by a nuclear reactor that is often four or five feet behind them, and we have not had so much as a cough develop. We have not had any problems with naval nuclear reactors. None. None. And we're not talking about having a nuclear power plant out on a mountain someplace or on a hill where a little radioactive gas leaking just kind of blow away. We're talking about, in the most extreme cases, we're talking about inside an encased steel tube. And we haven't had a single fatality or sickness that I'm aware of. And as people point out, they're also on board uh, carriers and they used to be on board cruisers. Um, the Ticonderoga class of nuclear-powered cruisers. I don't think we build 
nuclear-powered surface vessels anymore unless they're uh, carriers. And the reactors are getting better. There were, I, th I believe there were four reactors on the Nimitz class. I think the Ford has two. And the, Ford, the two Ford Nimitz class, the two Ford reactors generate, I don't know what the number is, half again as much or double as much as the Ford did on the Nimitz. We get better and better at this every year. And this is one of those things where they don't, you know, nobody reports on the planes that didn't crash today, right? Uh, you know, flight 1619 uh, from New York to Los Angeles landed safely at 4 o'clock p.m. today. Uh, further details at 11. No, this is going on right the second as we're sitting here talking. There are people in the United States Navy and other navies that are sailing around the world on the surface underwater on nuclear power, and they're doing it perfectly safety with perfect safety, and they've been doing it with perfect safety for seven decades now. Well, six. Um, so it's not about we could solve our energy problems immediately and not just solve them but solve them in a much better way right now our our number one vulnerability as a country is our new, is our electrical power grid a single atomic bomb detonated in orbit at the right position could knock this country back to the stone age and as my friend uh, frank gaffney who's all over this pointed out that none of the um these transformer stations, none of the power relay stations are built to a common standard. In other words, some of these transformers weigh hundreds of tons and no two of them are the same. So we don't have a shelf full of things to replace in that case. If we lose that power to an EMP, we're going to be without electricity for anywhere from six months to two years. And you don't need six months to, to have everything fall apart. You lose, you lose power for two weeks in the whole country. If you lose power in two weeks in a, in, a, in a hurricane situation, you can get supplies in there. But if the whole country goes down, no. Would a, would a, would a competent government be spending money on things like stockpiling these things and, and positioning them where they could be put in place rapidly? Yes. If the country were run by Mormons, for example, we wouldn't have a $33 trillion debt. We'd have things like standardized transformers where they're supposed to be. But no. So we're just going to be like the Titanic. We didn't sink yesterday. We didn't sink today. Hopefully we won't sink tomorrow. We're going to just keep on going and hope everything works out well. But there is a solution to this, and the solution is to instead of having some nuclear power, I want to say, I want to say that... Uh, Oh, it wasn't Diablo Canyon. What, what was it? Um, right on the tip of my tongue. The two reactors that are right down by um, uh, Camp Pendleton. Um, something point. Anyway, uh, those two reactors have been offline for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now or something. Um they, uh, San Onofre, thank you, I think that's it. Those reactors were producing 1,600 megawatts of power. 1,600 megawatts. I'm not sure if that was each reactor or the total output for the plant, but it was 1,600 units. They shut those down and they replaced them with a solar power plant that generates 20 megawatts. Not 1,600, 20, and it does it irregularly. Now, that 1,600 megawatts of power gets sent from this enormous reactor 
into a central power distribution plant and then goes out to everybody. And all of that transportation system is, the electrical transportation system is vulnerable. One of the scariest things that have happened in this country, nobody talks about it because nobody knows about it. I heard about it from Frank Gaffney, but several years ago, a number of people shot up a transformer station in Silicon Valley. They shot them up with AK-47s and they cut, I want to say they cut six of the seven lines into that transformer station that control the transformer. Was it in San Jose? It was a terrorist attack. If that, if they had not missed one of those phone lines that was used to bring this thing offline, then those transformers would have melted. If they had melted, Silicon Valley would have been, and San Francisco would have been without electrical power for six months to two years. And it was a coordinated attack done by numerous people who knew what they were doing. They went in, they cut those cables, they cut the right cables, then they shot up the right things with just regular AK-47s, and they damn near knocked the American tech industry out of action. And I used to be horrified by that, but now that I've actually said it out loud, I kind of wish they'd succeeded. Um, but, and, and Airtechie says there have been at least two more of those attacks. So instead of having a 1,600 megawatt power plant that's 60 miles or 100 miles or 200 miles away from us, wouldn't it be better to have a 20 megawatt power plant that, that like powers, you know, this is the Santa Monica power plant or it's the, um, it's the Burbank power plant. Yeah, it's 30 megawatts, powers Burbank. doesn't do anything else, just does Burbank. Or what if you had a 5 megawatt reactor or a 10 megawatt? I'm sure there's a, uh, a size that where you get, you no longer can build it because it's just too small. It doesn't really work out economically. Why not just, these things are about the size of a, of a, of a large water cooler now, and they cannot melt down, not because of their engineering, because of their design. If everything fails, then it fails safe. And it's about the size of a big, big, big boiler or water cooler. You just bury it in the ground, put a swimming pool over it. That'd be great because water is an excellent um, uh, shielding against uh, any kind of problems. And now your neighborhood, you and 10,000 other houses, have your own power plant. And as um, um, Mick from Vic says, it all fits in a 40-foot container. And they're standardized. And they don't have any moving parts. They don't require any... Um, personnel. They're self-contained. You, you turn them on by starting the chain reaction, and then you bury them. And, and the beauty of that is, is that that reactor is making, let's just say for the sake of the argument, it's making 25 megawatts all the time. It defeats the kind of thing that a certain generation like my generation heard all of our lives, which is our dad saying, I'm not heating all of outdoors, or I'm not air conditioning all of outdoors, or I'm not lighting all of outdoors. Turn off the light, turn off the air conditioning, turn off the heater. Don't leave the doors open because electricity costs money. You have your own reactor buried out there. You can heat the outdoors. You can. You can light the outdoors. It doesn't care. It's going to make that it's going to make that power whether or not you're using it. So you might as well use it. Why not? Why not heat all of outdoor uh, neighborhood in, in Minnesota? You could. It's gonna it's gonna make that power whether you use it or not. Why not? You have a world like that, and and then then all of a sudden the socialists have no control over you whatsoever. None, right? I'm just going to go out and do this. Where are you going to find the energy? To I'm just going to get it from a local reactor. You don't have to approve it. I don't care who you are. You're in Sacramento. You got nothing to do with me. I'm going to use the the reactor that we have in the in the backyards here in Studio City. So I'm going to use the Studio City electricity. 
there's more than we can use, so that's what I'm going to do. And if that reactor goes down, then you still have a backup power supply to get other power to them through, through lines. But generally speaking, you don't use that. And you don't get brownouts. And if you do get brownouts, you know who to talk to, right? If you find all of a sudden that they're saying, uh, we need you to turn off your air conditioning. I know it's 116 degrees outside, but everybody's running their air conditioning at all at the same time, and we just can't handle the load. Then instead of having it disappear into some faceless, mindless, personless pit in Sacramento where there's nobody to blame, now you can walk right down to the Burbank Power Distribution Center and say, what's going on here? Do we need another one of these things? Okay. So we raise taxes a little bit for one year. We buy another one. We bury it. Brownouts are gone. And we'll make more money from the free power than we paid in taxes. So everybody wins, right? This is the world I'm trying to get to with the, with the major Mace Mattingly thing. None of these things are hard. They're simple. And none of them are, 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 are experimental. We've done all this before. It works. We just don't do it because we listen to these weenies and these, and these D-bags and these neurotic lunatics. And we're hypnotized by them somehow. So, yeah, that's it. Assassin of the Grace says, but brownouts are part of California culture, says Nancy's nephew. You're joking, surely. Surely you're joking. Uh, Gavin I did not say that. His, his royal heinous did not say it's, but brownouts are part of California culture, for real. Because huh. I get the feeling that... Um, that for Gavin Newsom, uh, he doesn't get power brownouts. I got a pretty good feeling that Gavin Newsom's house has a secure energy supply, and if power does go out, he has backup generators, which pump a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. But it's okay because of him, because he's he's you know he's on a different level than us. He's a he's a, a leader. He's, he deserves to have uh, stake and and armed guards and electricity, all the things that we can't be allowed to have. Because if we have them, then how the hell can Gavin Newsom claim that he's better than us? How can he feel better than us? If he eats steak and we eat steak, how can Nancy Pelosi feel better than us if she has electricity and we have electricity? Or Diane Feinstein has the ability to defend her life with guns and we have the defendant. What's the point of being an elitist if the, if the people you're being elite over have the same standard of living as you? That's why it has to be destroyed. That's what it is. This is what they can't take. They, this is why Gavin Newsom let San Francisco become a pit of human feces. Because... Gavin Newsom doesn't have to walk through the human feces, and you do. Back when nobody had to walk through human feces, when the city was being run kind of like a city, then what's the point of being the mayor of the city if you can't lord it over people by little things like that? <sighs> Marisha Dark says, instead of uh, tarring and feathering these people, we should waterboard them with bugs. I just think we should make them... My, my punishment for Newsom and Pelosi and all the rest of them is to rigidly enforce upon them the lifestyle that they've insisted and voted upon for us. That's all I want. That means that Newsom never gets to go back to the French laundry, never gets another $600 dinner. He eats bugs for the rest of his life, and so does everybody else who's promoting this kind of thing. No more steak for you, Gavin. Uh, that's what we're going to do to you. The cruelty of our punishment is overwhelming. We are cruel enough to make you live by the rules that you wanted to create for the rest of us. That's, that's, that's what your sentence is going to be. And you can, yeah, and, and Eretiki says, make him crawl the streets of San Francisco. Yeah, that's another good idea. You can go clean up the needles and the, and the human feces. You get a 
we'll give you a, a plastic bag and because we're kind people and we don't believe in cruel and unusual punishment, we'll let you have some gloves too. But other than that, you got your work cut out for you, so get going. Um, Howard Johnson says, what a great name. I, I spent almost a year with a rock within a rock throw distance of the largest generator in Iraq, power generator in Iraq, and yet every day we completely lost power for four to two to four hours every day. Uh, Technology is not for everybody, folks, you know. I think that's one of the lessons of the 20th century and early 21st century is the technology is not independent of the culture that produced it. And if it's acceptable, it's not that the, it's not that the Iraqis don't have people smart enough to run a, the power plant. It's that the Iraqis accept the fact that they go without power for two to four hours every day. If they didn't accept the fact, then they'd fix it. And that's what they're trying to do for us here. The brownouts are getting us prepared for not having any power. Part of California culture, you know. That's why California is the laughing stock of the world and, and why Californians are so rightfully hated everywhere. Um, so, uh, I don't see anybody in the world doing what we do today. Forget about the Air Force Museum and forget about the B-70. No one's doing what we do today. No one. The Chinese aren't doing it. Uh, the Europeans aren't doing it. The Russians aren't doing it. And the United States government aren't doing it. In, in spaceflight, at least, they are all 20th century companies. And Elon Musk is a 21st century. SpaceX is a 21st century company competing with entire nations, including their clocks. I always had a thing against big, dumb rockets, and they always offended me because you look at those magnificent F-1 engines on the Saturn V. Those things are fantastic. What happens to them? Oh, they just chuck them in the ocean. Well, no wonder it costs so much money. When he landed, those twin boosters, I know it didn't nail the, 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 um, the center stage. It didn't matter. Seeing those two things come down within a second of each other, spread those landing legs, and then come to a, come to a halt, that moment changed my view of the future and the present. No one can do that. Um, no one. Uh, Roadrider says, Boring Company is sleeper. So what's interesting about the Boring Company. Um, and what, he's, what I suspect he's trying to do. Uh, Airtech, he says, SpaceX now has more, more launch cap capacity than the rest of the world combined. I don't doubt it, and they're just getting warmed up. Wait till they start to get that operational pace on, on the Starship, and then, they, then, then it's going to be just hilarious. Here's what's interesting about the Boring Company. We know he has Tesla. Elon, see, Elon Musk is an astonishing guy because he's not just astonishing in one area. He has a vision for things, and all of these things interlock. He's preparing, he, he's shown the technology for universal internet access over 80% of the planet's surface, which has got to be 99.9% .9 of the population, because you can take that system and put it on another planet. He's developed Tesla because electric motors have a lot of advantages, one of which is you can charge them with nuclear power. And they don't need air. They don't have to have you, electric Vehicles work real well in, in Martian atmosphere, uh, which is 1% of ours in terms of thickness, because it works on the moon where there is no atmosphere. I don't think this is a coincidence. So here's what's interesting about the Boring Company. 
he is, it's probably the least well-known of his companies. He has set up a company, and I've seen the people driving through a test tunnel. He has set up a company that bores tunnels through the earth. They're perfectly, what, are, what, are, what would they be? They would be um, cylindrical. Uh, so why would you do that? Well, everybody says, you know, Europeans say, oh, Americans are so far behind, you don't have high-speed rail like we do. Well, my response to that is, is because we have a country that's the size of a country instead of the size of a county. That's why you don't get your, your, your high-speed rail moves at, what, 200 miles an hour? That's too slow for us. we got to go at 550 miles an hour, and that's too slow for us. We need SSTs, and we need them now. But anyway, this country's too big for your little high-speed trains. They're not fast enough. That's why we don't have them. They're not fast enough. High-speed trains on the surface are limited by the air resistance on the train, and another thing to think about is, is that those tracks are vulnerable. If you had most people in the country traveling on Amtrak or any other high-speed rail system, and Amtrak is not high-speed, but those railroad tracks are just out there. And if you had uh, a kind of inclination to be a bad person, it's not hard to sabotage those tracks. It's not hard at all. So I don't have a lot of confidence in high-speed rail on the surface because of terrorism and because there's a speed limit. They're impressive as hell, don't get me wrong. I've seen footage of, of a train station when a high-speed train is going through there at full speed. It's coming through the train station at 200 miles an hour, and it's like a tornado hit the place. It's absolutely astonishing. I'm totally in favor of it, but great. But why is, why is the Boring Company different? Well, the Boring Company is different for two reasons. First of all, if you're in an underground uh, cylinder, that is secure. You can control access to that. You can monitor that 24-7. It's secure. That's one thing. And the second thing is, the genius of this is, if you pump the air out of the tunnel ahead of the train, then the train is not experiencing, you'll never pump all the air out of it, but if you reduce the air pressure in front of the train, then the train can accelerate to whatever speed it wants to. In fact, if you're really clever, you pump the air out of the, out of the tunnel ahead of the train and pump it into the tunnel behind the train, and the entire train is essentially a bullet. It's a, it, it's a real bullet train, not like just a fast train. A lot of pressure behind it, no pressure in front of it, down it goes. Doesn't need, doesn't need any motors on it, technically speaking. If you can control the air pressure in the cylinder, the thing would just be a shopping cart. You'd just have no engine on it, no motors on it, nothing, just, just wheels. And we'll just push it along through air pressure. And by the way, I want to say it was the first subway, but Alfred Beach built his own subway line in New York City, and he built a small little line, and his subway was pneumatically powered exactly like that. He didn't have gas fumes underground. He didn't have any of that stuff. He just, wait a minute, I think he had a propeller on the thing. But it was air-powered anyway. Cody Fett for $10 says, I thought we didn't have a working rail system because Woodrow Wilson nationalized the one we had and gave administration of it to his cousin or something. Well, imagine my shock. I did not know that, but that undoubtedly does it. Uh, Natasha and I took a train up to uh, Monterey. Loved it. Loved it. Loved Amtrak. Loved it. The ability to get up and walk around and have all the leg room you want. We rented a, like a half. A, we 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 then rent. We booked a a small. Um, it's like a half a suite. Absolutely one of the best trips we ever took. Loved it. Loved it so much. We said, well, what would it, you know? We want want to go visit Florida. Why don't we go Amtrak? What would that take? Well, and sleeper cars. Yes, I slept on the train comfortably, horizontally. It was fantastic. 
So why don't I take the train from California to Florida? Well, you can take the train from California to somewhere around Texas or Louisiana, at which point you have to go north, and you have to go north to Chicago. And then from Chicago, you have to go to Boston. And then from Boston, you have to come down the coast to Florida that way, which is considerably out of your way. There's a little distance in the southeast where you cannot go from California to Florida because of issues. The rail lines are owned by somebody and they're not leasing them to Amtrak. Either Amtrak's not willing to pay the price that they want for this because those rail lines have to be maintained. I don't know the reason, but you cannot go from California, at least you couldn't before the pandemic, can't go from California to Florida in a direct line. You have to go from California to Louisiana and then you have to go all the way to the top of the country, then go all the way across and come all the way back down again. And that's just nuts. Um, so anyway, that's that. I'm going to wrap it up. Hey, uh, gang, uh, it's, you know, actually it's a little bit over time for what we used to do. It's subpar based on our four hour adventures, but we're looking at two hours and 40 minutes. I'm hoping that's enough, uh, content for you all to, I don't know, to hold you little bastards. For those of you not familiar with that wonderful story, um, uh, the, um, the horrors of growing up in the in the 60s and 70s were some of the TV shows. Kids TV was not was not great, but uh, there was a show for um, Bozo the Clown. I never liked Bozo. I never liked clowns. I just didn't like watching Bozo the Clown. But a lot of people did. It was an incredibly popular show. And if, if I'm pretty sure it was Bozo the Clown that had the peanut gallery, that's where the term came from. Oh no 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 comments from the peanut gallery. That might have been Edgar Bergen, but I don't think it was. I'm pretty sure it was Bozo. Um, no comments from the peanut gallery. So the peanut gallery was where they had a bunch of kids and families, live audience. Bozo does a show in front of everybody. Hooray. And um, and so Bozo signs off. Ha, ha, ha. You know, that, that's where Krusty the Clown came from, by the way. Krusty the Clown is Bozo. That's 100% it. Oh, it was Howdy Doody. That's right. It was Howdy Doody that had the peanut gallery. In any event... This was Bozo. You're right about that. I knew it wasn't, but Bozo felt funny. Infidel 42 got it right again. Good to see you there, by the way, at the Air Force Academy there, Infidel. So anyway, Bozo is signing off the show. Again, good night, ladies and gentlemen. Good night, boys and girls. We'll see you next time on, 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 on the Bozo the Clown Show. And then, and then, as like they did with every episode, somebody else cut, but somebody in the in the booth didn't get the cut notice. And so while he's still on the air over the end credits, Bozo the Clown says, that ought to hold the little bastards in his non-clown voice, which was uh, quite shocking at the time, and I still think is one of the greatest moments in human history. Uh, did I see the big, Eric wants to know if I saw the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. I have not. I'm saving it for my golden years when I can see it in style, spend seven or eight days there, you know, not rush it or anything. Um, so that'll do it uh, for this edition of the Stress for Lunch, which, shockingly enough, will be posted on um, on the uh, BillWiddle.com website. Uh, yes, I'll try to remember to do that. Um, and uh, that's made possible by the people that are actually paying money for it, and uh, those people are special in our heart because they keep things like electricity running here, and that's handy when you're doing a show on the internet um so uh thanks to the members thanks to all the non-members thanks for all the super chats and all the comments and everybody else i'm going to write an email to uh to the future ruler of earth 
who um, I just think the world of and who also has a show on Friday night. So uh, I think that'll do it for the time being. So all of you out there, uh, be sure to get your own orders in for your own uh, backyard nuclear reactors. And um, and then, you know, what a wonderful world it's going to be. You know, spandex jackets for everyone. That's what I was promised, and that's what I demand. <laughs>